Here we go. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 391, The Battle of Hastings. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to everyone who signed up for membership or has donated over the years. This episode wouldn't have been possible without the support of every single one of you. Thank you. Stamford Bridge had been a nightmare. Thousands dead and untold numbers of wounded. And the fallout from that was just beginning. All over Britain, all over Europe, families would slowly be learning the fate of their loved ones. Word was now spreading across England, up to Orkney, out to Flanders and Norway. And at home in Northumbria, a once peaceful river crossing was now a heap of carnage. There were so many bodies lying on the bank that their bones would be visible for generations. It was an absolutely horrific and entirely avoidable catastrophe. Perhaps the only solace to be found was that the man who was responsible, Tostig, had been among the dead. So he couldn't do this again. But for Harold, his brother, that was probably cold comfort. And now it was his job to pick up the pieces of a war-torn kingdom. Meanwhile, at pretty much exactly this same time, just two days after the Battle of Stamford Bridge, activity at St. Valery had reached a fever pitch. The winds had changed, and they'd begun to blow northwards. And winds were very important. But spies had also likely heard that King Harold Godwinson had taken the English army north to Stamford Bridge. And right at the moment that the King of England, his Huskarls, and his Ferd were 250 miles to the north fighting against the King of Norway, well now, suddenly, William was in a rush to make a second attempt at crossing the channel, just like he had done a month earlier, at the very moment when the English coastal defense was disbanded. I can't say the Duke 100% definitely knew what was happening in England, but he 100% definitely knew. But he also knew that this window wouldn't stay open forever. They had to move quickly. Like, now, damn it, right now. So the coast of St. Valery was a flurry of activity, with knights, foot soldiers, and archers all doing their best to convince thousands of pounds of skittish, hoof-wielding doom to board these boats. And then, once the horses were on board, they had to stow their weapons and their armor, and then somehow find a place on these little boats to sit where they wouldn't get trampled or bitten or kicked overboard. So things were a bit hectic. And Snorri adds some detail to this. He says that as William was hastily preparing to invade, his wife, Matilda of Flanders, wanted to speak with him. So she walked up to him as William was sitting astride his horse and tried to get his attention. And William kicked her in the chest with his spurs and killed her. Then he boarded his ship and began his invasion. And Snorri adds that while William was known for being a great horseman and warrior, 
he was not a man to be relied on. Now, Snorri got that wrong. We know that Matilda went on to live for another 17 years. But you will also remember that this isn't the first time that we've heard about William attacking his poor wife. Orderic Vitalis also mentioned chilling acts of violence Matilda suffered at the hands of this Norman duke. So did Snorri get it half right? Did William also attack her on the eve of this invasion, but she survived? Maybe. It's not exactly out of the realm of possibility with this guy. But whatever the case, it is interesting that Snorri, writing in the 13th century, chose to take time out of his saga about Harald Hedrada to include this story about the violence and instability of a Norman duke who Hedrada had never met. Snorri, for some reason, found this tale relevant, even though it was functionally a non sequitur, or at most, a postscript on his saga about Hedrada. William the Bastard seems to have had a reputation in the medieval world, a bad one, which, considering the basement-level standards for interpersonal relations during this era, is unsettling to realize. And this was the man who was organizing the invasion of England. And while we don't know whether he kicked his wife as he prepared for it, or if he kicked anyone else for that matter, we can assume that loading these boats would have been a stressful endeavor. And as everyone was trying to get on board, whatever experienced sailors this army had managed to acquire would have been trying to get these overloaded boats properly rigged and seaworthy. And that would have been difficult because they were going into the channel in autumn. With ships that were overloaded with the shifting weight of nervous horses, as they were probably sitting much lower in the water than anyone would have wanted, while also being rocked by waves. Stress probably doesn't even begin to touch it, especially since they just lost about 10% of their ships in a storm the last time they tried to cross this godforsaken water. So dying at sea was no longer a theoretical possibility for these invaders. It had already happened to a lot of men and a lot of horses. And yet here they were, getting ready to do it all over again. Fantastic. So the scene at St. Valery must have been chaotic and emotionally fraught. And we're talking about thousands upon thousands of men and thousands upon thousands of horses. And very few of them would have really wanted to get on these boats. So it also would have taken forever. Like, imagine 10,000 toddlers trying to get on their shoes. Just absolutely forever. Now, granted... William did have it a bit easier than the rest of them, because he was on his flagship, the Mora. And while the rabble might have to rub shoulders with Pinkie Pie for the entire trip, the Duke didn't. He was likely able to stroll up the gangway and plonk down in relative comfort and just wait. But for the rest of his army, well, loading all those horses and then finding a small spot for Sir Ralph to squeeze into was taking a while. In fact, the whole thing took so long that they missed high tide, which would have been at about midday. And so now, their best chance at crossing quickly would have to be during their next high tide, which happened to be in the middle of the night. Not great. Especially since there was no moon out. It would be pitch black. 
and you might think that that would be to their advantage since they'd be difficult to spot. And that is true. Nobody could see them coming on a moonless night, but they also couldn't see each other or the shore. Classic. I mean, nothing in this invasion had been going well. It hadn't looked good when they spent a month trying to figure out what to do with tons upon tons of horse shit. And since then, they've been facing freak storms, shipwrecks, desertions, and all of it was being shored up by a little corpse magic. This whole thing had been a debacle from the start, and I just can't imagine that anybody thought their luck was about to turn around. So I'm guessing that one of the more experienced sailors carefully tried to point out that while those Black Seas might hide the presence of the fleet, they would also hide the boats from each other. And unless they wanted everyone to crash in the middle of the channel, they would need to find a way to actually, you know, see the literally hundreds of ships that were part of this fleet. So the decision was made to equip the ships with lanterns. And with that settled, William boarded his ship, the Mora, and began the invasion of England. Again. And the Mora, unencumbered by burly ponies and extra knights, and being much better constructed than the Norman barges, which most everyone else was crammed onto, was making great time. In fact, she really started to haul ass. The Mora left the rest of the fleet in her wake. And the about 700 ships behind her, riding low in the water, were doing their best to keep up. But at this point, I bet a few of those on board the ships began to wonder if the Duke planned on doing this invasion all on his own. Because he really was going like a bat out of hell. Meanwhile, in the north, King Harold Godwinson was likely wrapping up his difficult diplomatic work in Northumbria. And it hadn't gone well. He'd managed to liberate the entire north from the King of Norway, and yet, pretty much everyone was mad at him already. And as salt in the wound, his brother was dead. And while the north pretty clearly hated Tostig and welcomed that death, as far as we can tell from the records that have survived, Harold hadn't wanted this outcome. He'd done all he could to avoid conflict with his traitor brother, and he'd made every effort even during the battle to save the guy's life, even going so far as to offer the Norse army amnesty. But nothing had worked. And so now, rather than riding back to London with this family rift healed, he was just riding back with one of his brothers, Earl Gerth. His other brother, Leofwina, was likely in London waiting for them, keeping an eye on things. And his younger brother, Wolfnoth, well, he remained as a political prisoner by William the Bastard of Normandy. So Harold's once enormous family was in tatters, and he was running out of brothers. There's no surviving detailed record of Harold as he set out on his ride back to London, so we have no insight as to his mindset. But I just find it hard to believe that Harold wouldn't have been struggling with heartache, depression, and self-doubt. He was human, after all. Back at the channel, as dawn broke on the flagship Mora, Duke William must have smiled. His luck was finally turning. God was with him. They had set sail in the middle of the night. They had launched in a season that everyone said was too dangerous to sail. And they hadn't encountered a single storm. 
at least not this time. And miracle of miracles, the winds were at their backs, sending them directly towards their prey. And so on the morning of September 28th, William stood on the deck of the Mora and took in the sight all around him. He was out at sea for God's sake. And for a knight who had spent most of his life on horseback and, you know, on land, this must have been a hell of a sight. Nothing but water for miles. Absolutely nothing. Hey, where are the other ships? No, I'm not kidding, Stefan. Where the f*** are the other ships? Poitier tells us that a Norseman then scrambled up the mast and looked around. And while he did see quite a view, just an absolutely gorgeous, completely empty sea, that's all he saw. It turns out, putting lanterns on ships only works if you try and keep within sight of them. And so now, William seemed to be embarking on an invasion entirely by himself. So William ordered the sailors aboard the Mora to stop, or slow, or just do whatever the hell it is you do on these boats. And once the flagship was no longer racing across the channel alone, the Duke decided to tuck into a bit of brekkie. You see, William, who famously spent more time on horseback than he did doing cardio, was no stranger to breakfast. He was actually quite the fan. And according to Poitiers, on the first proper morning of his invasion, William helped himself to a feast that would have impressed Virgil. Yeah, Poitiers says the guy who wrote the Aeneid would have had his mind blown at how splendid William's morning spread was. This, apparently, was the steak and eggs that launched a thousand ships. And ever the hype man, Poitiers tells us that this princely breakfast was a sign of steel nerves in the face of impending battle. And definitely not, you know, stress eating. And then William broke out the spiced wine. Because nothing says I'm confident and calm like getting drunk with the sunrise. And while William was having his boozy brunch fit for the gods, Poitiers tells us that the oarsman shimmied his way back up the mast and took another look around. And now, there were a few ships just off the horizon. Thank goodness. So, as William had, I assume, another round or two, the sailors on board the Mora worked to rejoin the fleet. And after a bit... The poor oarsman headed back up the mast yet again to check on the status of the rest of the fleet. And there it was. The whole fleet. Thank God. But, man, it was taking forever for them to catch up. Just absolutely forever. Because while William was mostly just hauling around his breakfast buffet, the rest of them were hauling a metric ton of horse flesh and armor and that really slowed down the whole sailing process. But finally, the horse part of Project Seahorse had arrived. And now that William had finished his breakfast, the fleet was able to continue its crossing. Within hours, England was spotted on the horizon. Now, William was likely planning to head directly towards Hastings. You see, William had very little knowledge of England or of English terrain. But the coastline of Hastings had been the property of the monks of Facomp for quite some years, thanks to a gift by Edward the Confessor. 
before it was eventually reclaimed for the English by Harold Godwinson. And we know that the monks of Fecamp wanted those lands back, and that William had promised the abbot of Fecamp that he would restore them to his abbey. So it's reasonable to assume that while he was planning for this invasion, the monks would have told William about the lay of the land and what he could expect there. So of all the possible landing sites on the English shoreline, Hastings was one of the few places that William likely had any real knowledge of. However, Hastings had a long shoreline and not much of a harbor to speak of. In fact, the coast of Hastings was, and is, quite exposed. So on the list of places that you might want to land a fleet, Hastings would have been right towards the bottom. But luckily, William had hired a few sailors, and they would have known a much better landing site, which was just down the way from Hastings, actually. A town called Pevensey. Now these days, the Pevensey coastline looks a lot like the Hastings coastline, mostly straight and exposed. But back in the 11th century, the coastline looked very different. Back then, it was a very large natural harbor. Over the about a thousand years that have passed since then, it's been filled in with silt. But back in 1066, it was all open water, from the village of Pevensey to Wartling to Bexhill. And we're talking about a harbor with a mouth that was about five miles across. More than enough to shelter a large fleet of, say, nearly 800 ships. And once there, they would be less than a dozen miles from Hastings. So Pevensey was the natural choice. And that's where they went. Mostly. About 30 miles down the beach, far from Pevensey, and well past Hastings, lay the sink port of New Romney, which, lately, had seen some shit. Earlier that year, during one of his failed invasions, Tostig had ravaged his way from the Isle of Wight all the way down to Sandwich, hitting the sink ports and settlements along the way. And poor New Romney had been right on his path. The local Ferd was forced to grab their spears and swords, and as the king and his huskarls weren't yet in the field, they had to just do their best to fight off an entire fleet of Flemish pirates led by the king's idiot brother. Now, there are no good records on the ravaging of this town, but given that New Romney was only one stop on Tostig's campaign of piracy, I suspect that the local Ferd was quickly overwhelmed, and they either immediately paid a Danegeld or took quite a beating while their town was looted. And that was only one part of what New Romney had endured in 1066. Later that year, when the invasion seemed imminent, the Sinkport fleet and the Ferd had been called up by King Harold Godwinson. And they spent the summer maintaining a coast guard for an extraordinarily long term of service, which had only ended when their supplies ran out. And finally, just a few weeks ago, Another southern Ferd had been called up by the king to deal with Tostig's second invasion this year. This time, he'd targeted Northumbria, and he'd been accompanied by his berserker friend, the king of Norway. And many of the family and friends of the people of New Romney were still waiting for news about how their loved ones had fared in that fight. So the people of Romney had been through a lot. And through all of it, they also had to find a way to do their normal jobs. These were craftsmen, sailors, farmers, laborers. They were the lifeblood of their society. 
If they didn't do their work, the people of New Romney went without food and tools and repairs. So after being called up for military service, when they returned, they'd be expected to get right back to work as quickly as possible. The harvest still needed to be completed. That roof over there still needed to be fixed. Those trade ships still needed to be manned. And if you were wounded from battle, well, that's sad, but we still need you out in the field. Get to work. The point that I'm getting at here is that New Romney had been hard done to. Thanks to the ambitions of these rich aristocrats and their power games, these people had suffered terribly. And now, sitting at home, many were no doubt waiting for their loved ones to return from this latest war against Tostig and his Norse friends, and were probably worrying that they might not return at all. The damage that these dynasties had been inflicting upon the average, everyday folks was catastrophic. And then, there, right out there, on the horizon, were those ships? Those are ships. The king had been right all along. The Normans were here. Now, things on board those ships must have been a little bit hectic. Crossing the channel is difficult at the best of times. And the Normans had decided to do this thing on hard mode. On top of having full ships and potentially high seas, they had set out in the middle of the night and then told everyone to spread out so they wouldn't crash into each other. And it seems that a few of those ships really understood the assignment. And as they approached the English coast, they were probably wondering where the hell everyone else was. We aren't entirely sure how the ships navigated across the channel in the 11th century. But once within sight, experienced navigators would no doubt be able to identify certain landmarks and then work out their position and build a course based on that. And chances are very good that they used a tactic called offset navigation, which is also sometimes referred to as deliberate error navigation. Basically, this means that you don't sail directly for your destination. Instead, you intentionally sail to one side of it. So that way, when you spot the shore, you know which way you need to turn. And then you just follow the coastline until you see familiar landmarks. But mistakes happen. And sometimes you offset the wrong way. Or get blown off course. Or you take a right when you should have taken a left. And for one portion of William's invasion fleet, something had gone wrong. But with the winds at their backs... It wasn't like they could just turn around. Even if they wanted to, it's highly unlikely that even experienced sailors would have effectively been able to tack against the wind in a wooden barge that was stuffed with horses. So this thing was happening. They were here, wherever here was. But on the upside, the English king was fighting in the north. His army was far from the landing grounds. The only resistance that they could possibly face at this point would be coming from traders and peasants. And they were knights on a quest sanctioned by the Pope. These people didn't stand a chance. But here's the thing. While King Harold had called up the Ferd and taken it to Northumbria with him, that didn't mean that New Romney was empty. Conscription was done in phases. 
only a portion of the fighting age people of New Romney were with the king. The rest were still at home. And if these soldiers weren't stopped here, they would do what invading armies always did. They would burn, ravage, and kill their way through the community. So the people of Romney found themselves up against an existential threat. And as the ships approached shore, they were grabbing armor, shields, knives, sharp sticks, whatever they could find to defend themselves. And as the Normans advanced upon the town, the people, with whatever they had on hand, rose up and fought back. They faced an invading chivalric army, and it turned out the people won. The people at Pevensey, on the other hand, didn't fare so well. Rather than facing a few isolated off-course ships, the people of Pevensey faced a horizon stuffed with literally hundreds upon hundreds of ships, all headed directly towards their harbor. A stout-hearted local Ferd had a pretty good chance against a small raiding fleet, but this was an invasion force carrying as many as 12,000 fighters. A local Ferd wasn't designed to handle this. The only options here were either to surrender or flee. Anything else was suicide. But those were hardly good options. Running from the advancing army meant leaving everything you had behind. And where would you go? Who would take you in? How would you care for yourself and your family? Furthermore, if you had family members who had been called up for Harold's Ferd, how would they find you? And considering that the Ferd likely took any horses that they could along with them, chances are you would only be able to flee with whatever you could carry on your back. You couldn't even bring your livestock since driving them would slow you down. Everything would have to be abandoned. And that meant it would definitely be seized by the invading army. And that's assuming you could even run. What about the family and friends who couldn't travel easily? The elderly, the sick, the women who were far along in a pregnancy, the small children. What of them? And seriously, even if you could run, where would you go? This wasn't exactly a highly mobile society. It wasn't like they were just going to have family and friends in Mercia or something. For most people, pretty much everything they knew was in their hometown. And making matters worse, winter was right around the corner. Just running away isn't as simple as it sounds. Conversely, staying at home when you have thousands upon thousands of violent soldiers who are about to march down the streets of your hometown isn't exactly a safe choice either. Raiders and invading armies tend to have very similar approaches when dealing with local populations. They typically only differ on matters of scale. And I imagine this is why we have so many anecdotal accounts of people taking shelter in churches during moments like this. They might have been people who were unable to flee. And in that situation, divine intervention is pretty much all they could hope for. And it was all happening because some guy wanted a hat and a chair. So before a single sword was drawn, before they even set a single foot on English soil, already the people of England were being terrorized. Already their lives were upended. The threat of death and suffering preceded the army itself. 
On board the Mora, William had a problem on his hands. Pevensey was as good a landing spot as he could hope for, but his navigators were also likely trying to explain to him that, being a shallow, broad inlet, the harbor would be highly responsive to the tides. And based on the record, it appears that William had arrived at Pevensey during high tide, which was good news for him, because high tide would be the best time for the fleet to be able to make use of the harbor. However, as soon as the tide started to turn, that would result in large amounts of inland water streaming out of that same harbor. So if they didn't get in before that turn, the current would ensure that they'd have to spend another night at sea, within view of the English, but just sitting there, probably stress eating, again. Well, William would be stress eating. The rest of his army would probably just be stressing. Because as we've discussed in previous episodes, William's planned invasion was not going according to plan. There have been numerous delays, as well as a failed crossing. And despite William's ostentatiously hearty breakfast, they were running on empty. Supplies have been low back when they were at the River Deve, and at St. Valerie, following the disastrous first attempt at crossing, things were bad enough that William had chewed his way through their reserves in an effort to keep morale up. William had failed to properly prepare for every eventuality. And as a result, the Duke and his army didn't bring much with them other than their weaponry and an appetite. As the saying goes, amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. And this failure of logistical planning meant that there were thousands as many as 12,000 hungry, heavily armed men who were getting hungrier by the minute. And they were also desperately uncomfortable. Being crammed onto a boat between Rarity and Fluttershy will do that. So if William let this stretch out for another night, things might not go too well for him once he got to land. So the decision was made to rush into the harbor. They had one chance, and they had to make it. Pevensey was a bustling market and harbor town. This was more than a typical village, and as such, the population was significant enough that it could likely produce a large local defense fort of around 1,500 people, even taking into account the king's previous muster. And 1,500 fighters could definitely slow the advance of William's invasion. But when facing an army somewhere in the range of 10 to 12,000 men, it would only be a matter of time before they would all die. So instead, a rider, or more likely riders, were sent carrying a warning to the king. Because Pevensey's only hope was if help came. And once the riders were out, the people of the harbor town could either flee or watch helplessly as ship after ship after ship entered the harbor. Now, for the invasion fleet, Pevensey was an excellent landing site. The Normans had little trouble getting their ships in and landed. But while it looks easy, William's actions suggest that he was well, a little nervous. He and his commanders likely didn't know what to expect and also likely anticipated an attack. So they kept their ships anchored close together. 
and his men quickly disembarked and began unloading their horses and armaments, just in case they needed them. The tapestry actually takes the time to show men leading horses off the ships, while other men were still taking down the masts. Which actually makes sense. Not just from a tactical position, but also, I'd imagine that after an overnight crossing, everyone was really eager to get Applejack off that boat. And honestly, trying to take down the mast while she's still on board could very well result in you getting a hoof to the face. So the Normans were moving really quickly. And next, the tapestry dramatizes the landing, showing knights rushing out of the water and onto dry land, astride their horses. They're shown wearing their coats of mail and armed with shields and lances, but they're not wearing their helmets. This is potentially intending to convey that the Normans rush to shore anxious of the possibility of battle. But in their rush, they weren't entirely prepared for it either. After that, the tapestry shows the knights advancing on the town of Pevensey, with their spears at the ready, and one knight holding his spear over his shoulder as if he's prepared to throw it. But they met no resistance. And so, more and more of the Normans, along with their bulky ponies, were unloaded. And Wace, in his Roman de Rue, claims that during this process, William went to disembark himself, but he slipped and he fell face forward into the beach. His men gasped with horror, but William grabbed the sand and told his men that he had grabbed onto England with both hands. Now, if this is true, it is extremely impressive because this is exactly the same thing that Caesar did when he arrived in England, according to Suetonius. And it's also exactly the same thing that King Edward III did, according to Foisar. So this is either the longest tradition among marauding psychopaths in history, or this is one of those myths that just keeps getting revived and applied to whoever the conqueror of the week happened to be. And truthfully, instead of a pratfall followed by a witty retort, what William actually did upon landing had far less charm. Realizing the town wasn't offering any resistance, he decided to feed his troops. And that meant that his men were set loose on the town and the surrounding countryside. And they began to do what knights do. The bio-tapestry shows William's soldiers, led by someone named Wedard, immediately moving into the town and taking the livestock and the food that the people of Pevensey were relying on to help them get through the winter. You should see me in a crowd. We see cattle, sheep, pigs, grain, and anything else they could get their hands on being slaughtered and cooked up for the around 10,000 men who were swarming over their beaches and harbor. The Normans had arrived without any logistical planning or supply routes. And so instead, William had set his knights and soldiers loose on the local population and they were pillaging anything they wanted. Meanwhile, on the road to London, the king was completely unaware of what was happening in Sussex. And if we go purely based on the narrative records of this invasion, it's difficult to identify precisely how much damage was being done. But we know that the pillaging was terrible. And we know that even if a knight refused to kill peasants and instead decided to be merciful and just take their food, those families were still almost certainly condemned to die. 
only this time due to starvation rather than the sword. Centuries earlier, the Roman general Vegetius wrote of how, quote, the principal point of war is to secure plenty of provisions for oneself, and to destroy the enemy by famine is more terrible than the sword, end quote. For millennia, we've known that war isn't a clean conflict between two opposing professional armies that focus all of their violence against one another. We have known that for most of our recorded history. And yet our records often focus on military casualties, even though the primary victims of war aren't the soldiers. It's not the military targets at all. Instead, the main costs of war are borne by people, just average people who had no role to play in the conflict, little to no power to choose leaders and none to choose generals. They had no say in who fights or where they fight or why they fight. And those are the people who are routinely killed in war, both directly through weapons wielded by those armies and indirectly through the famine, disease, and devastation that follows in the wake of those armies. We've known this for centuries. And this is critical for you to remember. This isn't an accident. As Vegetius makes clear, and as history has shown for literally thousands of years, what military leaders call collateral damage is part of the strategy of war. That collateral damage is people, people like you and like me, much more like you and me than any king or knight or general. But our narrative accounts seeking to cast conquest as a heroic adventure leave that part out. And so they don't bother to give us the precise numbers of how many homes were burned and how many lives were ruined, and how many average people were killed. But what happened in Sussex is a little unique in that regard, because we do have the Doomsday Book. And while the Normans didn't want their records to make them look bad, they were very much interested in taxes and money. And so they kept a record of what could and couldn't be taxed, and for how much. And in the Doomsday Book, which was built for the purpose of taxes, we're able to see the part of the story that figures like Poitiers intentionally leaves out. You see, damn near every village in England is listed in the Doomsday Book. And generally, in these records, we're given each village's taxable value at three different points in time. Just before the invasion, just after the invasion, and finally 20 years later. And by looking at which villages completely collapsed between the first and second entries, we're able to trace the movement of William's invasion and identify which villages and towns were pillaged by his army. The map of tragedy that it traces is staggering. Now, taxation is just money, and so it is only one metric by which to measure the impact of the pillaging and destruction. It inevitably undercuts the entirety of the human toll, the pain, the suffering, the lifelong trauma, and the endless consequences of the violent rupture of life for these people. It also doesn't take into account the generational trauma that echoes through children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. There will be people born 60 and 80 years after this invasion, and I guarantee their lives will be negatively impacted by what was happening here. These things have knock-on effects, and they don't appear in simple tax records. But 
A tax record built by a brutal colonizer is what we've got. And when we look at the record for Pevensey, for the people who first felt the impact of the Norman invasion, we see a population cut in half. Half of Pevensey is gone just after the invasion. For the survivors, this meant that they were missing half of their friends, half of their family members, half of their neighbors, just gone. And remember, this wasn't a conquest, not officially. Thanks to Cardinal Hildebrand and Pope Alexander II's support of this invasion, this was a papally sanctioned holy war to preserve the Christian peace. It was a public embellum, and as part of this support, the Pope was committed to absolve William and his army of all the sins they committed during the invasion meaning that anything that this army did was sanctioned by God. Anything. And these were medieval knights, with all the brutality, ignorance, and viciousness that came with that culture. But those were realities that the Pope, cardinals, and their many attendants would never have to see or face in any real way. They were horrors that were happening in a far-off land full of foreigners. And based on what we know about papal politics at the time, the Pope and Cardinal Hildebrand were much more focused on the expansion of papal authority. So this was a move aimed at giving them a political advantage in their complicated web of political intrigue. So for the priests of Rome, that was what was real. What was happening to the people of Pevensey, on the other hand, that was probably just theoretical. And so William and his knights, released from any fear that they may face eternal damnation for their actions were free to act as they pleased. Also remember that William's pretense for this invasion was that he was the rightful claimant to the English throne, the right, true, and godly king of England. He was insisting that he brought this army to English shores essentially as a liberator, to save England from an ungodly usurper and tyrant. And what was the first thing he did? he immediately attacked these people that he was claiming he was here to save. And this idea that William of Normandy was the rightful king of England and that King Harold Godwinson was a usurper actually endures to this day. Many French accounts and a surprising number of English popular accounts portray Harold as a usurper and William as the true king of England. And that's strange because even a cursory glance at even the Norman accounts would show it to be a lie. But this, in the end, was William's big lie. The kind of lie that's so big that people reflexively accept it because surely no one would lie about something this egregious and easily disproven. And so about a thousand years later, there still are people who believe that he was there to de-tyrannize England. But the truth is, Harold wasn't a usurper, and William wasn't the true heir to the throne. And the last thing William was going to do was save anyone. There's a reason why we don't call him William the Inheritor. His every action betrays the truth. He came to England as a conqueror right from the start. And recognizing his tenuous position and the likelihood that King Harold would soon hear of his arrival... William ordered his troops to begin constructing a wooden fortress inside the old Roman stone walls at Pevensey Castle, which was overlooking his ships and the natural harbor. 
and with all those men now fed, his fortress was completed in a day or two. Meanwhile, King Harold was continuing his journey south. It was an incredibly long ride, several hundred miles, and considering that they had just engaged in a forced march only a week earlier, and that he had pushed his men to the very brink, chances are, this ride was a bit more leisurely, and word had not yet reached him about what was happening. Because even though riders had already certainly fled Pevensey in search of royal support, it took time for news to travel. But within a few days of William's landing, word of King Harold Godwinson's victory at Stamford Bridge had definitely reached Sussex. And when the riders first set out, they had been carrying happy news. News of victory and an end to the war. And this happy news eventually trickled to the camp of William the Bastard. And tradition holds that a man by the name of Robert Fitzwymark was the one who brought the news to William. He was a Norman who had been brought into the kingdom by Edward the Confessor and had served in the English court. And when Robert delivered the news of Harold's triumph, the effect was dramatic. For one, it kicked off a flurry of propaganda. Norman accounts used the battle at Stamford Bridge to add yet another after-the-fact justification for this war. This time, claiming that due to their historic relationship with the Norse, William and his army were now seeking revenge for their kith and kin who'd been slain at Stamford Bridge. They also sought to recast King Harold as a fratricidal maniac, a new story of Cain and Abel. And one version of this Norman propaganda even alleges that Harold was so ruthless and so hateful towards his brother that he beheaded the corpse of Tostig. Now, all of this is ridiculous for obvious reasons, but again, you tell enough lies and you tell them big enough and people might start to believe you. But beyond the propaganda opportunities that this news provided, there was also the strategic information. William now knew that he would be facing Harold Godwinson, not Harold Hadrada. And critically, we're told that this informant, Robert, told William that the king had, quote, innumerable soldiers all well-equipped for war, end quote. And he added, quote, your own warriors will prove no more account than a pack of curs, end quote. That was a problem for William, a big one. Gathering soldiers for Operation Seahorse had been expensive and difficult. Even William's own subjects hadn't wanted to do it. And even after the Pope blessed the endeavor, everyone was still reluctant. And it was only after he promised to give his fighters land that he'd finally managed to get people to agree to join him on this invasion. But even then, he'd been dealing with problems of desertion, and he'd had to resort to all manner of tricks and theater to keep his army from abandoning the campaign. Well, you know, the ones who hadn't abandoned it already. And so news that King Harold Godwinson had defeated and utterly demolished the army of the fearsome and famous King Harold Hadrada probably hit the camp like a thunderbolt. I wouldn't be surprised if William had to struggle to keep his men from walking right back onto those boats and paddling themselves home. In many ways, this was terrible news. But learning that King Harold was victorious at Stamford Bridge also gave William a pressure point that he wouldn't have had had Hadrada won. You see, Hadrada, like William, had been a stranger to these lands. 
He had no connection to the English. So for these two men, this wasn't home. This was a new acquisition, and these people were just part of it. But King Harold Godwinson was an English lord. He was from these lands. His family had governed over the people of Sussex for generations. For the House of Godwin, Sussex wasn't just some potential new piece of taxable property. Sussex was home. He had deep roots here, and he had a strong cultural and historical relationship with these lands and their people. And those ties governed his behavior and the behavior of his forebears. When Edward the Confessor had ordered the House of Godwin to slaughter the people of Dover, which was just down the way, the whole family refused. And they continued to refuse, even as King Edward threatened to drag England into a civil war over it. This family, for all their faults, had a sense of duty, to the South specifically. And William realized that he could use this sense of noble obligation against the king. If the king had a better army than he did, then the duke would turn his ire on those who weren't as well equipped for war. He would attack the helpless and terrorize the English. He was going to shock their king into making a mistake. This is who William was. This is how he and these Normans worked. And so the army, which had already been pillaging, now turned to outright destruction. You should see me in a and I want to make this very clear. Warfare during this period was ruthless and the poor and powerless often suffered the brunt of the suffering during any of these conflicts. Attacking the general public, killing the peasantry, burning fields, and stealing possessions was something that happened time and time again. The murder of peasants who served a rival noble was seen as a valid military and political tactic. But even by the standards of this period, William and his army were going well beyond the pale both in what they did and the scale at which they did it. The pillaging that had taken place when they first landed had been to feed the army. It had been ruthless and brutal, but the purpose was to compensate for William's failure of logistical planning. The raiding that followed, however, had another purpose. Cruelty. The people of Pevensey were their first victims, but they were far from the last. In one particularly striking image from the bio-tapestry, we see a mother and her child either trapped in a burning building or trying to flee from it. You should see me in a now keep in mind that the bio-tapestry is a friendly document. This was commissioned by Bishop Odo with the intent of showing what happened during the conquest and, critically, what his role in it was. The tapestry was a brag. Bishop Odo was showing off. Because the church wasn't just greenlighting this affair. Men of the cloth were taking part in it. And judging by what goes into the tapestry, it seems that setting fires to the homes of women and children, and either leaving them homeless or burning them alive, was something that they were so proud of they had it embroidered in a commemorative trophy that they displayed in their church on holidays. And as these things were taking place, the tapestry portrays the leadership sitting down at a table, ready to tuck into a meal. And this isn't just any dinner portrait. The layout is an allegory for the medieval representations of the Last Supper. 
There's even wine and bread on the table. And there, sitting at the center of the gathering, the very spot where Jesus would normally be, was Bishop Odo. We see him happily chowing down on some fish while the other leaders were eating chicken skewered on arrows. Dinner was served. And the implication here is that this is a religious event and that Bishop Odo was reigning supreme over it. And he very well may have been. The knights didn't know much, but they knew to fear God. And a lot of time and effort went into making sure that they at least knew that. And burning down the homes of mothers and children is pretty clearly f***ing evil. So the guy who could provide them with cultural and religious cover was probably really important. And so, wouldn't you know it, he got the best seat at the table. And he was also given a fancy meal of fish. Probably because it was Friday. Because, if I understand things correctly, God didn't mind if you burned Hilda and Little Umfirth Jr. out of their homes but he drew the line at eating meat on a Friday. And so what we know from this is that an orgy of theft and violence was being carried out upon the meek. And apparently, when Odo later recalled this moment, he instructed the women embroidering the tapestry to portray him as Jesus. This is what conquest is. Entire communities were burned. People were dying. People were starving. Suffering was widespread. It was horrific and the conquerors celebrate it with a feast. Returning to the Doomsday Book, when you look at the communities that ringed Pevensey, the primarily farming villages, which would have been in the range of William's tactical rampage, places like Hailsham, Hertzmanku, Hu, the Doomsday Book reports that they lost 75% of their population. Ninfield and Catsfield show similar evidence of destruction. And the story shown in the Doomsday Book gets worse. The record bestows some of these communities with an eerie title. Wasta. Meaning they were laid to waste. Virtually nothing remained there. No fields, no buildings, no people. Nothing could be taxed. And since the Normans loved their taxes, that meant there was nothing but the burned out husks that were once home to families, friends, and neighbors. People like you, like me. What we're seeing in the Doomsday Book is that William and his men were methodically and deliberately destroying these towns. And this went way beyond the need to supply the needs of an army. Ashburnham, which was located on one of the only good roads in the area, is labeled Wasta, laid to waste by the knights. Heading east towards Hastings, William and his army struck Bexhill, Crowhurst, Wilting, and Filsham and gave them that word, Wasta. Not even the lands that William had promised to the abbot of Fecomp were spared, as Icklesham and Gestling sat right there, and were Wasta. Heading north towards London, the knights and soldiers laid waste to Netherfield, while nearby Sedliscombe suffered a brutal depopulation. The lands surrounding Pevensey and Hastings were being ruthlessly and systematically pillaged and depopulated. What those knights did was so bad and so vicious that the papacy would later complain about the behavior of William and his knights and comment on the severe reputational hit that they took for supporting the Norman conquest. I don't know how much killing the Pope and his allies had in mind when they sanctioned this invasion. I'm not a theologian, so I don't know what's an appropriate amount of murder in order to promote a marginal increase in papal power. 
But apparently, William and his army went beyond that amount. And far from being horrified, the impression that we're given is that the Normans were having fun. Many of the stories that we get from the Normans tend to be lighthearted. They were even making jokes. For example, when William learned that he lost some ships on the crossing, including one that was carrying his court soothsayer, he quipped that that man couldn't have been much of a fortune teller if he couldn't even predict his own death. And if you ignore that he's laughing about his own people drowning, that's kind of a funny comment. And reading about these people making quips while they're also making orphans is confusing and difficult to reconcile. There's something in your mind that expects people who do these things to be cold, robotic monsters, not people who laugh with the boys. And I think ultimately it comes down to empathy. If this violence was against a group they identified with, for example, the people back home, I doubt they'd be so jovial. But the Norman invasion force clearly didn't empathize with the English. And as such, they were able to carry out their orders and even after the fact, we see them sharing stories where they're making jokes and having fun with it. In another example, shortly after landing, William suited up and rode into the surrounding countryside along with a detachment of his knights. And his longtime companion and seneschal, William Fitzosborne, was with him. The assumption is that William and his advisor were doing some reconnaissance which would be wise since they really did have very little knowledge of England and so they needed to work out if this actually would be a good base of operations or if they should relocate to somewhere else. But something happened while they were out there and it's assumed that it involved the rough terrain. But whatever it was, William and his men who had gone out on horses had to return on foot. And apparently it was quite a walk because William had his coat of mail slung over his shoulder, and also William Fitzosborne's. Now, we're not given enough detail to know exactly what happened here, but it certainly seems like William did something, perhaps against Fitzosborne's advice, and it ended badly. And that would explain why the scribe describes William as shucking Fitzosborne's armor and describes it as, quote, a matter doubtless for laughter, end quote. You see what I mean here? For one side, it's a horror show, but for the other, we're getting these stories that make it sound like a fun adventure with silly mishaps. And that might be why so many people are eager for these tales, because the Norman perspective of heroism and fun adventure has been the popular way to tell this story for about a thousand years. But the full story is a lot less fun. Unfortunately, though, when learning history, you don't get to just pick out the fun bits. And there really were thousands upon thousands of knights and soldiers in Sussex. And they really were pillaging. And given what we know from other sources, they were also brutalizing the local population as they did it. And for their victims, this wasn't a matter doubtless for laughter. It was a nightmare. Several days after landing, the Normans had completed their fort which would help them better protect their fleet. But their scouts had also determined that Pevensey was actually a terrible place to be encamped, at least for their entire army. The only good route inland was the old Roman road, and that went west for about 15 miles to Lewis before turning north to London. And that really was it. 
Their only other option for going inland from Pevensey was via a small marshy path. And taking that route would have been disastrous. For all we know, it might have been the cause for the loss of William's horses during that trip that everyone was laughing about. So they knew that they needed to relocate. And so, within a few days of landing, it was determined that they should move a bit to the west. But his choice of location is baffling. See, back then, it was just an isolated little corner. Just a small triangle of land bordering the sea roughly 10 miles across and 6 miles deep. Reaching this bit of land was difficult, as the River Breed cut across the north and tidal marshes made it very difficult to approach from that route. And then you had the estuary ultimately penning it in from the east. It was also similarly pinned in from the west by the nearby Bulverhythe Harbor. And between those two bodies of water was about a 4-mile gap. But those lands also had hills on them, which are not exactly the sort of thing that makes for a good cavalry charge. There was a road that led out of it, and that road did connect to the old Roman road that went from Dover to London. So at least it wasn't completely isolated. But having only one route out and being surrounded by terrain that's terrible for cavalry doesn't strike me as a tactically brilliant move. Unless you were looking not for something to attack from, but for something to hide in. And maybe that's what William had in mind. Maybe he just wanted somewhere safe to position himself while he let his men loose on the surrounding countryside with orders to cause as much death and destruction as possible. And as he had learned about this plot of land from the monks of Facomp, maybe that's all the motivation he needed to move the bulk of his forces to Hastings. And considering that most of the surrounding villages were soon no more than charred ruins, and the estate that William had promised to Facomp was now thoroughly ravaged, I wonder if those monks regretted giving advice to this man. Meanwhile, a rider finally reached King Harold on the road to London, and he told him that William the Bastard had landed in Sussex, and that he had positioned himself on the coast, fortifying himself there. He went on to inform the king of the brutality of the Normans, what they were doing to the land, how they were seizing livestock, how they were enslaving women and children. The account goes on to state that they were even enslaving widows. Now, this account comes from the Carmen de Hastinge Prolio, the Song of the Battle of Hastings. And the Carmen is thought to have been written within two years of the invasion, making it our earliest surviving record of what happened and it was likely written by a guy named Bishop Guy of Amiens, who himself was quite close with the House of Normandy, even later serving as Matilda's chaplain. Now, Bishop Guy wasn't present for this invasion, but his nephew, Hugh of Ponthieu, was. And while Guy was a bishop, he was also a French aristocrat, so he was no stranger to the ways of medieval warfare and the kind of men who fought in these battles and the sorts of things that they did. And the Carmen is such a recent record that Poitiers used it as a source for his gesta, though Poitiers was also not that pleased with many of the events that Guy included, and he often seeks to correct it with his own record. You see, the audience for the Carmen was the royal family of Poitiers as well as Count Eustace of Boulogne. And as such, that document was focused primarily on the efforts of the Breton and French forces. 
and William is actually the only Norman who's featured in it. And that didn't sit well with the intentions of Poitiers, who was relentlessly focused on portraying Norman achievements and heroism. So anything that ran counter to that goal tended to be suppressed and replaced instead with new details discussing how great William and the Normans were. So while Poitiers glossed over what William and his army were up to in Sussex, the Carmen let slip this much darker story of enslavement and brutality, a story that's confirmed in the Doomsday Book. And the goal of the Carmen, it seems, was to curry favor with those who supported this invasion. And that gives us the subtext that Bishop Gee, just like Bishop Odo with his tapestry, believed that these deeds, like the enslavement of women and children, were, well, good. And the sad truth of this is violence against women and sexual enslavement was a form of terrorism that medieval rulers had used and would continue to use against their rivals. The enslavement of children served a similar purpose. Even taking the cattle carries with it a form of terrorism because cattle, unlike fields, take many years to breed and raise. So when the messenger arrived and said that the Normans had taken all the cattle, what he's saying is that William and his army have economically devastated the communities for years, if not generations. And as we've been saying, Sussex wasn't just any earldom in England. Sussex was at the center of the political and economic power of the House of Godwin. So King Harold would have known that William wasn't just supplying his army and fortifying. He was striking at the heart of the Godwin sins. He was terrorizing the local population and ensuring that the pain and suffering would carry on for generations. This was a way to attack King Harold, even though he wasn't there. And some of you might be surprised to learn that Harold would even care about towns that were being burned down or that average people were being enslaved and killed. After all, this was the same Harold Godwinson who had earlier engaged in a whole genocide campaign in Wales. But we see this again and again throughout history, and in current events for that matter. Capacity for empathy doesn't mean it will be evenly applied to all situations and to all peoples. Harold clearly didn't identify with the Welsh. They were foreign, but Sussex was home. So it seems that for Harold, that was different. Furthermore, while these horrific tactics had been carried out in the past, sources do suggest that this was on a scale that was surprising even for the time. When the Pope and Cardinals are getting criticized for supporting you, despite the fact this all occurred at the edge of the world, far from Rome, and to people who the church didn't even really care that much about, well, it's clear that you've extended well past whatever grace you may have been given. In fact, what William was doing was so bad that Poitiers, who ties himself in knots in order to avoid speaking about any details about what William and his army were doing to the public, was still forced to reference it obliquely. He just quickly mentions that William's ravaging forced King Harold to write out as quickly as possible, and then he drops the matter. But these acts, acts that shocked Rome thousands of miles away and left towns emptied, are what King Harold heard was happening to the people of Sussex, to the very same people that his family had been charged with protecting for generations. 
England was facing the second invasion army in as many weeks. And this second one appeared to be far worse. He needed to defend these people. He needed to defend his crown. But who could he turn to for support? For decades, the strength of the House of Godwin had come from their mutual bonds and family support. But with the death of Godwin, those bonds began to dissolve. And now, the House of Godwin was a mere shadow of what it once was. The eldest Godwinson, Swain, for all his faults, had been a capable commander and had been gifted at developing allies. But he was now long dead. Tostig, for all his faults, was, well, also dead. Harold's younger brother, Wolfnoth, was held as a hostage by William the Bastard. His sister, Edith, who had been such a mainstay of the court during the days of Edward, was now growing increasingly embittered by her diminished role in court following Harold's elevation. Honestly, the only family Harold could really turn to these days were his two remaining brothers, Gerth and Leofwina. And they were solid and dependable, but that was a far cry from the celebratory feast that they'd all enjoyed at the Isle of Wight, back when their father was still alive. Harold couldn't even turn to his cousin, King Swain of Denmark, as King Swain also had a claim on England, and it was arguably one of the strongest claims of any who put themselves forward as the heir to the throne. He was the nephew of King Canute the Great, so asking him to provide troops could very well end in yet another claimant leading an army on English soil. And anyway, there's no way King Swain could get here quick enough. If things were different, Harold might have been able to seek the support of Wales. However, those bonds had been forged by Harold's older brother, and Harold had instead pursued his brother's ally, King Gruffith, to his grave. The English king's treatment of Wales and the brutality that he brought to the Welsh people no doubt played a major part in Harold's path to the crown. But now that he was wearing that crown, he was alone. And to the Welsh... He was an enemy. To the north, in Scotland, there was King Malcolm Canmore. And he had a good relationship with the English, and had even been a guest at King Edward's court, and was betrothed to King Edward's niece, Margaret. However, that betrothal had been broken off, likely at around the same time where the Godwinsons began to position themselves as the heir to the throne. And it's clear that King Malcolm heard the slight for what it was, because he raided the north of England shortly thereafter. And Malcolm was so angry with Harold that he even sheltered Tostig for a while, so no help would come from Scotland. Across the Channel, in Flanders, was Count Baldwin. And Flanders had long been an ally of England. But Baldwin was Duke William of Normandy's father-in-law through his marriage to Matilda. So that wasn't going to happen either. Closer to home, there was still the English nobility that Harold could call on. But would they answer? The Northumbrian nobility were outraged that Morcar was reinstated as their earl, as he had failed to protect them from Hadrada at Fulford Gate. And as Harold was the one who ordered that reinstatement, he bore the blame for their weak ruler. And it wasn't exactly like the Northumbrian nobility liked him all that much in the first place. You might recall that they were so suspicious of the Godwinsons that Harold had to travel north immediately after his coronation and ask for them to give him their fealty. 
presumably in order to stave off a rebellion. And on top of that, there's also the fact that North was already dealing with the aftermath of the previous invasion. They were exhausted, wounded, and were probably just trying to collect enough food to get them through the winter. And there's a very good chance that they resented Harold for not responding to the Norse threat fast enough. So those old Northumbrian dynasties, with all their wealth and influence, had plenty of reasons to dislike the House of Godwin, and King Harold in particular. Now, of course, you might think that at the very least, Earl Morcar and his brother Earl Edwin could be relied upon to support the king in this war. After all, he had just reinstated them to power. But remember, those two brothers were of a dynasty that had long feuded with the House of Godwin. And at any rate, they had mustered all the forces they could for the battle at Fulford Gate. And we're told that that had been a slaughter. So the two teenaged rulers were likely out of forces. And there was no chance that they could get together anyone in time for this new war over 200 miles to the south. And on top of that, Morcar and Edwin were actually furious with King Harold. Before the king left to return to London, he had assigned a sheriff of the north, one of his own men who was loyal to the king, who would keep an eye on things up there. The boys had been given a babysitter. And in an honor-based culture, you can imagine how well that went over. No, the sons of Elfgar and the forces of Northumbria in general were unlikely to answer any call from King Harold. But while the North was almost certainly knocked out of the fight, there was still the rest of England. Kind of. See, the king had already called the Ferd twice this year. The first time was when he was defending the coastline, and he had kept those conscripts longer than anyone expected, and they were only allowed to return home once supplies had been depleted. The second time, the Ferd had been sent on a brutal force march that lasted close to a week, and then at Stamford Bridge, they had fought one of the most deadly and drawn-out battles that anyone could remember. Even for those who escaped the ordeal alive and without injury, they would have been spent. It would take days to weeks to recover from that. What's more, they hadn't been paid. You see, typically, they should have received a share of the reclaimed loot. But the king, likely anticipating future expenses, kept it under the care of the Archbishop of York. So not only was this second Ferd exhausted and bloodied, they were also deeply insulted and outraged that their new king would violate this clear expectation within their culture. Now, England had a population that was sufficient to call another Ferd, a fresh Ferd. But considering how things went with the last two, King Harold was likely concerned about how many would answer the call. Would they even believe him? There weren't exactly recording devices in this era. He couldn't just send photos and video of what was happening. So would somebody living in Norfolk just take the king's word for how dangerous William was? He couldn't know for sure. And on top of all of this, Harold didn't even have a royal fleet. At least not a royal fleet the way previous kings had. Under King Edward, the royal fleet had been privatized. And now it was up to the merchant-run sink ports to provide ships to protect the kingdom. But they only had to do that for a specific term of service. And the sink ports had already filled their quota and then some, back when they were called up during that coastal defense earlier that year. 
Furthermore, Harold's idiot brother Tostig and his fleet of Flemish pirates had raided many, if not all, of the sink ports this same year. So who knows how many of those ships actually remained? And ultimately, whether or not they would answer the king's summons would come down to whether or not they felt like it, as they had already done their duty months ago. King Harold Godwinson was facing off with an international coalition of dukes, counts, landless knights. Oh, and don't forget the Pope. It must have felt like all of Western Europe was raining down upon him. And all King Harold could truly rely on in this moment were his huskarls, whatever Ferdsmen remained at his side, and his brothers, Gerth and Leofwina. King Harold Godwinson was in a terrible position, and much of it was a trap of his own making. But now that he was in it, he needed to find a way out. And Harold was a gifted general and strategist. This wasn't the first time he found himself in trouble. He could find a way out of this. And he didn't have any other choice. This army was destroying villages, enslaving women and children, and worse. William had to be stopped. So the king ordered his Huskarls, his companions, and what remained of his Ferd to march south, as fast as they could manage. He had already asked so much of these men. They should already be returning home for winter. They should have been resting and recuperating after one of the hardest marches and longest battles anyone had heard of. But that wasn't the hand they were dealt. His allies were few. His men were exhausted. He was exhausted. But England had been invaded, and the people of Sussex were suffering. So King Harold and what remained of the English army rode for London as hard as they dared. And as they rode, it's highly likely he sent off riders in every direction, calling for any remaining Ferdsmen to either join his army on the road or meet him in London. They rode again for war. But they were days from London even at this pace. And London itself was dazed from the coast of Sussex. And every moment that ride south continued, William and his men continued their destruction. The kind of devastation that the Normans eventually reported in the Doomsday Book took time. Even for an army as large as William's, the systematic destruction of so many towns and villages took a lot of effort. And so as King Harold and his army thundered down the road south to London, he no doubt continued to receive messages telling him of which towns had been burned, of how many villagers had been killed, how many were fleeing as refugees, how many were enslaved. He almost certainly was also informed of the fortifications that William had constructed, first at Pevensey and next at Hastings. And that last part was probably confusing to King Harold, because it was actually really weird. And the king may have taken it as the first bit of good news. Invading forces during this era didn't typically enter a country only to establish a fort and just stay there waiting to be attacked. And they certainly didn't do it twice. Conquest typically looked a lot more like what King Harold Hadrada of Norway had done in Northumbria. You land, you take towns and villages as the opportunity arises, and then advance upon a major city, York in his case. Once seized, you don't hole up, 
Instead, you prepare to move your army to either meet your opponent in the field, or you move to take more towns and more villages, which is likely why Hadrada re-encamped at Stamford Bridge. This is how an experienced commander conducted a medieval conquest. What you don't do is bottle your force up in a Roman fort overlooking a harbor, and then stuff the rest of your force in a little triangular bit of land along the coast, surrounded by marshes. That's just weird. So why would he do it? Well, William was probably a little nervous, and for good reason. He had hundreds of ships in harbor, but Normandy wasn't exactly a maritime culture, whereas England was. If the sink ports, earldoms, and other coastal communities provided ships for the crown and formed an English military fleet, William would be in trouble. In that circumstance, soldiers from all across the kingdom could ferry to just about anywhere with a coast. And if that English fleet destroyed or seized William's ships, he would find himself surrounded in enemy territory with no way to escape. So fortifying at Pevensey would help keep William and his ships safe. And placing the bulk of his forces at Hastings would allow him to keep a wary eye for any hostile ships on the horizon. Furthermore, while Hastings might be a terrible launching pad to start an invasion, and it really was terrible as it only had one road out and it was difficult to use for horses, it was actually a fantastic defensive position. It was surrounded by swamps, estuaries, hills, dense woods, oh, and the frigging ocean. All of it combining to make a spot that was just really difficult for an army to get to. Staying on the southern coast also helped William keep lines of communication open with Normandy and keep the landing ground open for fresh troops in the future. And here's the dirty little truth about William of Normandy. He was about 40 years old at this point. He'd had plenty of experience in battle. But it was Norman battle. They fought sieges and led cavalry units. He would have had little to no experience commanding a set-piece field battle of this size. You know, the sort of battle that King Harold had just won. Now, William had fought against the Norman rebels at Valais Dune in 1047, but it was King Henry of France who was the senior commander at that battle, not him. And when he fought against Geoffrey Anjou at Varaville in 1057, as Professor Gillingham notes, it was, quote, in fact, not a battle, end quote. William's advance was so fast that day that he was able to take advantage of the fact that the French army was split up. So William was able to take one portion by surprise, force a rout, and then cut down the men as they ran. It was an ambush, a far cry from King Harold's day-long struggle at Stamford Bridge. Furthermore, if we trust the Norman accounts, then William and Harold had fought alongside each other for a time. William would have been aware of Harold's capabilities as a war leader from back when Harold helped the Duke in his campaigns. And according to these same stories, Harold had even saved some of William's own men. So if these records are correct, then William would have been all too familiar with Harold's competence and bravery when it came to warfare. There are even some Norman accounts that go so far as to tell us that as battle approached, William worried about being on the wrong end of one of Harold's uniquely bold moves like a night attack or some other surprise. And Harold had with him a competent retinue. 
his Huskarls in particular. But the archers and even the Ferd by this point had earned a reputation for bringing a hard fight. And many of them were now experienced in fighting together and had similar or complementary training. Whereas William's men, if you remember, were drawn from whoever was willing to join. They were from everywhere. Not exactly the stuff of force cohesion. And it actually had been incredibly difficult for William to gather troops for this invasion. His half-brothers, Bishop Odo and Count Robert, were supporting him, as were a variety of French nobles. But each came with intentions more dubious than the next. The fact was, this invasion wasn't a popular idea, and even William's own subjects weren't exactly keen on it. That's the whole reason why he was forced to turn to the Pope for support, and when that only helped a little, he was forced to promise out land that he hadn't even conquered yet. So functionally, what William the Bastard had packed into Pevensey and Hastings were a bunch of mercs. They had no real ideological reason to obey William's commands. And even the Normans, by custom, believed the Duke had no authority over them once they were overseas. Also working against them was 11th century France. Because France at that point lacked not only egalité and liberté, but there wasn't much of a sense of fraternité either. All of these knights and soldiers packed together were as likely to be nursing long-standing grudges as forging any sense of fellowship. So cooperation was not exactly these people's strong suit. And finally, this was foreign land. William didn't know the landscape, but King Harold sure did. Marching into the English countryside dramatically increased the possibility that the Normans can find themselves on a battlefield of Harold's choosing, and that could spell disaster. So William likely realized that taking his army out into the field to face King Harold directly was a huge risk. The odds were stacked up against them. And so William was working to even things up a little. By hunkering down in the south and fortifying, he would be in a good position to join with any reinforcements. He would also have time to keep these men rested and maybe even train them up a little. And if he could lure King Harold to come to him... William might be able to create a situation where the battle would be fought on his terms. And there was one more important difference between William and Harold. King Harold, ultimately, was an honorable man. He hewed to the traditional Old English sense of duty and position. Even Poitiers admits that King Harold was honorable. Now, this doesn't mean that he was a hero, especially not by our standards, Heroes don't wear crowns, and even if there were heroes, they weren't about to get recorded by these scribes. But there were important cultural differences between the 11th century English and the 11th century Normans. Harold was unlikely to allow brutality to continue in his lands. If he failed to protect the people of this area, the entire concept of kingship would be put up for question. And Harold, having sat on the throne for such a short time, and having come from the House of Godwin rather than the House of Wessex, wasn't exactly in a situation where he could afford to have people questioning his kingship. And William likely knew this. He may have also well calculated that if he put the screws to Sussex, Harold and his army might march quicker than they should. Duty-bound to protect these lands and people, Harold might exhaust his army before they even reached Hastings. And that might give William and his army the advantage they needed. Now, as usual, 
Poitier tries to spin this situation, claiming Williams said, quote, I will not hide behind ditches or palisades, but will engage Harold's army as soon as possible, end quote. But this is clearly a lie. William didn't seek Harold out. He doesn't even appear to have attempted to catch King Harold and the army of England out when they were unguarded and resting from their march. Contrary to what Poitiers claims, William very clearly built two forts, and he hid in them, behind both palisades and ditches. And meanwhile, his men rode out and destroyed any community within their reach. And they planted scouts throughout the area, watching to see if King Harold would take the bait. In early October, King Harold and his Huskarls finally arrived in London. Like his journey to York, Harold and his men had covered the ground at a punishing pace. The entire trip had taken only four or five days. In fact, he'd moved so quickly that he'd left his foot soldiers behind. Prioritizing speed, only riders accompanied him. Everyone else would just have to meet up with him as quick as they could. And if God favored them at all, fresh members of the Ferd from around England would soon be joining them. But that was no guarantee. In a matter of only several months, we've seen one Ferd exhausted and returned home due to a lack of supplies following that long coastal defense, a regional Ferd of Northumbria and Mercia being pretty much destroyed at Fulford Gate, and a second King's Ferd, which was successful at Stamford Bridge, but was badly bloodied, exhausted, and was now, thanks to Harold not allowing looting, thoroughly dispirited. Many of those who had fought at Stamford Bridge were likely in no shape to fight. They'd been on a forced march for about a week to get to York, fought a brutal battle, and then had to march back to London, with many of the elite fighters marching back to London at a breakneck pace. Exhaustion doesn't even begin to describe it. Any single one of these events would have required a significant amount of rest to recover from. And anyone in this company had completed at least two of these things while the Huskarls and whatever Ferdsmen remained with the king had done all three. But while Harold was exhausted, and his Huskarls were exhausted, and multiple Ferds were exhausted, that didn't mean that the military capabilities of England had been depleted. Surprisingly, there were still plenty of Ferdsmen available to be called. At least in theory. If you know where to look, you can actually see that the English Ferd was vast. And we know this because while the English weren't compiling kingdom-wide census data, the Normans absolutely did. Because again, the Normans weren't here to save England from tyranny. They were colonizers. And the goal of colonization is to get rich. That's the entire point. And one of the main ways colonizers get rich is by forcing taxes on the people they now dominate. And in their effort to extract every last drop of wealth from the English, the Normans left an enormous amount of information about the people they were extracting from. So, when we combine the information from the Doomsday Book with the evidence that we have from the local written records, and combine that with the laws of Athelstan and others, we start to get a picture of just how enormous the English Ferd system actually was. Because the laws of Athelstan required each burr to provide two well-horsed men for every plow it had. 
Now, historians suspect that plow in this context doesn't literally mean a plow, but instead indicates some measure of land, most likely the amount of land that you could reasonably tend with a single plow. So the way this is interpreted is King Athelstan required landowners to provision a predictable number of troops on horseback relative to the amount of land that they owed. This meant the early English conscription system looked a lot like the food rent system. But here's where it gets fun. The Doomsday Book, the Norman census compiled in 1086, mentions both plow lands and plow teams. Now, we probably can't just put the laws of Athelstan right next to the number of plowlands and plow teams that were mentioned over 100 years later in the Doomsday Book and expect to know exactly how many fighters there were. If we did that, it would suggest that England held a potential conscription of between 120 and 160,000 mounted soldiers, which seems unlikely. More likely, a plow in King Athelstan's code was understood differently than a plow in the Doomsday Book. But even if we take that in mind, and adjust the number of plows down to a mere fraction, the law code still suggests that England had the ability to muster a truly staggering number of soldiers on horseback. And the events of 1066 actually bear this out. England was capable of engaging multiple massive military campaigns, all on the same year, sometimes all at once, often on horseback. And there's another bit of evidence. Thietmar of Merseburg wrote about the Siege of London in 1016, and he speaks about how London alone held 24,000 coats of mail. Just London. That's enough coats of mail to cover every fighter at Stamford Bridge. On both sides. Now, Thietmar was shocked by these numbers, and frankly, so was I. But looking at Athelstan's code and seeing the number of English mustering at full capacity through 1066, this probably wasn't much of an exaggeration. Now, of course, 50 years in real terms is a long time. And by 1066, England was coming hot off of King Edward's lousy rulership. And Eddie had thrust the kingdom into the brink of civil war repeatedly. He'd engaged in a number of expensive military debacles. And as a cherry on top, he privatized the Royal Navy. So it's reasonable to question whether at the end of all this, England would still be able to produce numbers similar to what it had done in 1016, back when Edward's brother, King Edmund Ironsides, was sitting on the throne. But maybe, probably in fact, don't forget that the Siege of London in 1016, the time when Thietmar said they had 24,000 coats of mail in one city, well, that was coming hot off of Edward's father, Athelred Unred. Things really had been going off the rails for quite some time, but the old system put in place by the line of Alfred was so robust that it kept the kingdom afloat through multiple poor rulers. And despite the fact that Athelred was like a robot sent back from the future, programmed to do one and only one thing, undermine English unity, they still retained a huge military capability that was able to be mustered at London. And London was where Harold went. And one thing that's clear about Harold, he knew how to use this English conscription system to its full effect. Version C of the Chronicle tells us that only earlier this same year, King Harold had assembled a land and naval force that was larger than any had been seen before, meaning more than Athelstan and his plow-based conscription, more than Edmund Ironsides and his 24,000 coats of mail in one city, more than Alfred and his war with Guthrum, more than anyone had ever seen before. 
all the evidence we have indicates that England had an enormous military capability. And yet, Harold brought a mere 12,000 men with him to Stamford Bridge. And that suggests he was only scratching the surface. England had more fighters, but they also needed to get to Harold. And when the king had ridden out for York, he'd taken his full forces, which meant that he probably pulled heavily from London. And behind him, the city was probably left with just enough to defend the city. And now that Harold was returning with his fastest riders, and the rest were still on the road from the north, that meant that Harold only had a fraction of his original army. And in London, there might not have been much left to muster. So Harold desperately needed the rest of his forces to catch up, and for everyone else from around the kingdom to arrive. And he had to hope that they would just arrive in time. It had taken the king the better part of a week to get from York to London, a journey of about 250 miles. And he'd been moving on horseback as fast as he dared. Armies typically aren't able to march more than about 20 miles without getting exhausted. And even the journey from London to Pevensey was about 50 or 60 miles. So for a well-trained army on foot, that would mean several days. And while England likely had the men, the travel distances involved meant it would take time. It took time for riders to reach the burrs, the towns, and the villages, and seek conscripts. It took time for those conscripts to be kitted out and mobilized. It took time for them to march to London and join the king's army. It all took time. Time the people of Sussex didn't have. News of the continuing brutality, and possibly even refugees, would have been arriving in London there would have been a steady drumbeat of panic that would have gotten louder by the day. And as Harold waited for his forces, he did all he could, and he sent one more messenger. At some point, King Harold's envoy reached William's encampment. The king's herald told the invader that the kingdom was Harold's by right. It was granted to him by King Edward on his deathbed, and that grant was witnessed. The Herald also told William that if he refused to withdraw, all friendship with Normandy would be broken, and the responsibility of those consequences would be William's alone. William selected a monk from Fecamp to carry his reply to Harold, a man who, according to Wace, was named Hugh Margot. When Hugh arrived in London, he told Harold that William insisted the king surrender the throne and his kingdom as he, William, was the one true heir of King Edward. If Harold would not abdicate the throne, then this would be settled by arms. Poitiers claims that William actually offered to settle the matter in ritualized personal combat. And he goes on to say that William even offered to have the case judged by the laws of England. And, as you know by now, under the laws of England, it's the Witan who makes a king. And the Witan had declared Harold king, so, the laws of England had actually already settled the matter. Poitiers' version is a fairy tale. There's no way William gathered that many landless knights and mercs on the promise of future payments of land, and then decided he was just going to risk it all on the gamble that he could either beat Harold in a bar brawl, or that somehow the English Witan would uphold the super-secret promise that he got from Edward. Instead, this is much more likely to be yet another of Poitiers' propaganda statements. Because the truth, that William and his men were murdering peasants to enrage Harold into taking the field, 
was far less heroic and much more difficult to explain to their future English subjects. So most likely, the messages that were actually passed between Harold and William were along the lines of Harold telling William to get the hell out of the kingdom and William saying, no, give me your crown or I'll keep killing peasants. But either way, the king had no way out of this. But while William's response probably wasn't a surprise, Harold's envoy probably also returned with much worse news. It's likely that during the envoy's stay in the Norman encampment, he would have noticed the presence of the papal banner. And William likely ensured that the messenger saw the papal banner and papal ring. And while William's army might not have had a word for it, they all knew why they were there. This was basically a crusade. They were crusaders. And if Harold hadn't yet known that the Pope had all but launched a holy war against him, he would have learned it when his envoy returned to London. And the records state that upon hearing William's demands, Harold grew pale, eventually only saying, we marched to battle. It was not even a month since the last invasion, and Harold was staring down another fight to the death for this throne. And it wasn't just against William the Bastard. It was also against the Pope. I'd be pale too. Forced to wait for more fighters to arrive, Harold went to the church of Waltham Holy Cross in London, and he prayed. Now, what might not be clear at this point is that Waltham wasn't just any church to Harold. King Harold had actually rebuilt this church. He'd endowed it, and he'd invested time and treasure into what was now certainly his spiritual home. And the church and the mysterious cross it was known for, which had been found buried on a hill by a thane named Tovey, had a long history of miracles. In fact, according to legend, the reason why Harold loved Waltham was that as a child, he had been struck with paralysis. And he believed that it was praying at this cross which had cured him. And I'm sure that he was hoping the cross would give him one more miracle. Just one more nudge of destiny from the divine presence. Because he needed support. As much as he could get. But King Harold can only wait so long. He could only delay for so long. Military tactics are one thing, but culture, honor, and the very bedrock of authority of kingship demanded that he act. Furthermore, William's position on the coast must have been an enormous worry. By placing himself at Hastings and by maintaining control over the harbor town of Pevensey, it all but signaled that more men were coming especially now that Harold definitely knew that William had the support of the Pope. It had turned this territorial war into a public embellum, and with that came the promise of absolution for all the sins committed in furtherance of William's purpose. So God knows how many knights would be enticed by that. This army could be growing stronger by the day. For all Harold knew, this was just phase one of William's plan. And now that the Duke had landed and established a beachhead, more knights from across Europe could be taking up the church's offer to raid England in search of riches and guilt-free violence. And we see in the record how, at this point, Harold's behavior changes. It gets a little more pressured, a little more hectic, and a little more strained. He seems to be consumed with the need to move quickly and to put a stop to this war immediately. 
and it's easy to see why. Culturally, Harold's fitness for the crown hinged on his ability to defend that crown, and that included defending his kingdom and subjects. So if he sat back and did nothing, his fitness to rule would be called into question. Further, the House of Godwin, as we've talked about, had deep ties with the lands that William was now turning into bones and ash. And William was known for these tactics. He'd previously unleashed the same blind viciousness upon Maine. And now, with the papal involvement, and with William's fortification at Hastings and Pevensey, the specter was being raised that England would soon be subject to the French practice of unending warfare just rolling retaliatory sieges that created thick webs of enemies and turned life into chaos. See, England wasn't fortified like France. The burrs existed, and manors sometimes had wooden walls with ditches, but nothing like the obsessive construction of stone castles that were developed in response to these relentless internal French fights. And if the records are true, Harold would have had first-hand knowledge of this Norman way of war. He would have seen how ravaging was used as a weapon, how knights were paid in the loot of their own country, how the French would use these forts as castles and bases of operations to fuel even further pillaging, and how they could hop from fortified location to fortified location and wreak absolute devastation with their cavalry attacks. If William was allowed further inland, the English would be exposed to a type of violence they had no defense for. Culturally and strategically, Harold and his soldiers were likely desperate to cut this possibility off and meet William in the field to try and stave off the horrific future that he threatened to bring with him. But if Harold had any chance at that, he would need to move sooner rather than later. Because the longer he waited, the more likely it was that William would dig in further and more knights would gather under this papal banner. And one thing that Harold had going for him was that this was his home turf. Harold was a Godwinson, and the Godwinsons had estates all over Greater Wessex, including Sussex. These were his family lands going back generations, and so Harold knew things that William likely didn't. For example, he knew that there was just one road that an army could use to leave Hastings and invade the rest of England. Just one. It sat at the watershed, just on the outskirts of that little triangle of dry land that was Hastings. He also knew that if William and his thousands of knights made it past that road, they'd find that it branched. And suddenly, the way would be open to London from a whole variety of angles. And it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for the English army to intercept them. If Harold wanted to stop William, he needed to keep them at Hastings. He needed to form a blockade. And Harold knew something else that William probably didn't. He knew that he had the loyalty of the English. His summons was being answered. Fighters from across the kingdom were coming, and in large numbers. Furthermore, even though King Edward had decommissioned the royal fleet, the sailors of England respected King Harold and hundreds of ships were ready to be deployed wherever he needed them. So if Harold could get his army to the choke point leading out of Hastings, and he could also position the English fleet off the coast of Hastings, William and his marauders would be trapped. However, the success of this idea 
hinged entirely on his ability to get to that choke point before William knew what was happening. If William caught wind of Harold's plan, he could move his knights beyond that choke point and then out into the English countryside. So Harold had to be fast and he had to be quiet. But quick strikes were the king's bread and butter. His rapid advance had nearly finished the war against King Gruffith of Wales before it began. And his quick march north had completely demolished the Norse army of King Harald Hadrada. Speed worked for Harald, and he thought his best shot was to move quickly and take him by surprise, just as he had done to Harald Hadrada at Stamford Bridge. And just like at Stamford Bridge, he would do this himself. Because one thing seems clear about King Harald Godwinson. He went hard. This is who he was. When he was an earl, he made decisions quickly and then leaned in. All the way in. Harald didn't do things by half measures. And for 40 years, those instincts had served him well. Where Edward quibbled, Harald was decisive. Where Edward hid behind walls while sending his army out, Harold led from the front. And through it all, he had earned the respect and admiration of the people of England. He'd won the loyalty of the Witan. He was the king of England, for f**k's sake, despite not being on the line of succession. But these instincts also tended to leave him exposed. Going so hard on the southern coast had depleted a lot of the English furred. Going so hard in Yorkshire had depleted even more of the furred. And with his plan to rush south, with whatever forces could keep up with him, he was gambling everything on the chance that, by catching William by surprise, he could completely annihilate this invasion force the way he had done at Stamford Bridge. Placing the English army and himself at this choke point on the road leading out of Hastings was very dangerous, because the only way to control that spot was to encamp right on the invasion force's very doorstep probably only about eight miles from William's fort. Stationing the army there on the southern edge of the Wales did give them a good chance of trapping William, but it also significantly increased the likelihood that the English army could be attacked before it was fully assembled and prepared. And while Harold had managed to keep his army secret from Hadrada while at Tadcaster, which was about 10 miles from the Norris army, there was no guarantee that that would work again. It did have the potential to nip this problem in the bud. But if he failed, England could be lost all at once. But Harold's frenetic pace may have had something other than strategy driving it. Because we have another story about him from these crucial few days. And it comes from Orderic Vitalis, and then is later repeated by William of Malmesbury. And Harold in this story seems out of character from what else we know about him as a person. Harold had been in London for about a week. Soldiers were answering his call, but clearly not enough. Not by a long shot. And according to Florence of Worcester, even after that week's delay, Harold and the English army still awaited the vast majority of the Ferd, Thanes, and other fighters that they were anticipating. Worcester adds that weighing on the king's mind was the fact that England's strongest fighters had been injured or killed in the two battles of the prior weeks. The army that was assembling, such as it was, was smaller than it needed to be, had fewer veterans, and what veterans were with the king 
were exhausted and bloodied. And frankly, so was Harold. The king looked terrible. And so, as Harold was preparing for his rush south, we're told that his brother, Earl Gurth, tried to get Harold to do one of the things that he was worst at. Slow down. Because this was crazy. It was clear that the king was exhausted and he needed rest. And no one could deny the king's courage and sense of duty, but he didn't need to march out to another battle so soon, especially not in this state. So Gurth told Harold to wait until he had a chance to recover and until his forces from Stamford Bridge also had a chance to rest and until the remainder of his forces had a chance to arrive. But Harold didn't want to hear it. So Gurth changed tactics. He would go in Harold's stead. After all, he had experience in battle having served alongside Harold at Stamford Bridge. And beyond that, we're told that Gurth suggested that because he'd never met William, there was no chance of any kind of oath between them, which would mean that he was not bound to the Norman Duke and couldn't be accused of being an oathbreaker. Now, it's unclear how heavily this threat of oathbreaking actually weighed on Harold's mind, but it does sound like Gurth was just using any tool he had at his disposal here. The trouble, though, was that this was King Harold Godwinson, a man who knew his mind and his mind was made up. So Gurth took a third swing at it, and argued that it was actually strategically wise to send him in Harold's place, because if there was a battle and Gurth was killed, it really wouldn't matter. The king could just raise another army and fight William himself. But if Harold died, the kingdom would be lost. And he really did have a point there. And according to some sources, Gurth went on to suggest that not only should Harold stay in London, but he should blockade the roads behind Gurth's advance and burn the lands so that William and his army would be starved out. It was a desperate idea. And if he really did suggest it, Gurth must have also been feeling the pressure. Which honestly would make sense. Harold wasn't the only person who'd just been through an incredibly bloody and horrible battle. And he also wasn't the only person to have just lost a brother in that battle. And I wonder if Gurth was just as shaken as I suspect Harold was. Because Gurth's position was basically, let me go fight and die in your stead. Which is a terrible argument. But if you're desperate, it might be the argument you make. Because this small story might just come down to a man staring down the very real possibility of losing a second brother in battle within the space of a month. And rather than facing the grief, he was begging to be allowed to go instead and keep Harold safe. The trouble, though, was that telling Harold to let others do the fighting for him wasn't a convincing argument at the best of times. And Harold was probably as uninterested in losing another brother as Gurth was. I mean, this was the guy who rode right up to the Norman lines to give his traitor brother one more chance to be saved. He wasn't going to be pleased about the idea of putting more family members in danger while he stayed safe. In fact, the very idea of it pissed him off. The records say that the king responded with anger and he lashed out. Orderick describes this rather antiseptically, saying, quote, Harold became very indignant in his speech, end quote, and that he, quote, 
loaded his brother with reproaches for his faithful counsel, end quote. Which is a fancy way of saying Harold lost his shit and cussed Gerth out. Other accounts go so far as to say he hit him. And this story, if it's true, seems very sad. Two brothers, stressed and grieving, are staring down the barrel of yet more death. And acting like we probably all would. With desperation. And in the end, they came to an agreement. An agreement that actually seems like something we all might do. An emotional one. And an unstrategic one. The brothers agreed that they would all ride out to that spot on the edge of the world together. All of them. King Harold, Gerth, and Earl Leofwina. All three would face this risk together. But there was another family member in London. The men's mother, Githa. And I can only imagine what this poor woman had been through. A little over a decade ago, her son, Wolfnoth, had been taken captive and held hostage by Edward the Confessor. And just when it looked like they might get him back, he was sent to William the Bastard, who had kept him imprisoned ever since. Shortly afterwards, her firstborn child, Swain, was killed after a series of terrifying experiences, including a family-wide exile. A year after Swain's death, her husband, Godwin, had died. Her third-born son, Tostic, was then exiled and became so embittered that he waged a war against his own home and had seemingly lost his mind. And just over a week ago, he led another invasion into England to depose and presumably kill her other son, Harold. But he was killed, and his body was found in a pile of corpses. And here she was, watching as her eldest living son prepared to march on an invasion force led by the man who had one of her sons imprisoned, as two of her other sons swore to join him on this potential suicide mission. Because judging by Gerth's remarks, they all understood this was an extremely dangerous plan. And these were her children. All five of her sons might be killed in the space of a month. And if that happened, and this William took the kingdom, who knows what nightmares her remaining children and grandchildren would face. They may all face death. And while we know very little about Githa, we know she was a parent. And according to Orderic Vitalis, she responded exactly how you would imagine a parent would. She begged Harold to stay. She pleaded with him to call off his plan. And Orderic tells us that as she clung to her son to try and keep him from leaving, the king forgot himself and kicked his mother. You heard that right. Orderic said the king forgot himself and struck his own mother. From the frantic speed and impatience of Harold's actions to the conflict between the brothers to the heartbreakingly awful attack on his own mother. It seems painfully clear here that Harold was desperate and traumatized. But he was the king, and he had decided that a quick strike was the best path. So there's only so much anyone could do to stop him. Later scribes suggest that he was impulsive and rash, others that he was arrogant. But Orderic writes, quote, the fault of rashness or levity is not one that anyone can charge against him, end quote. 
And I think that's right. I think it's far more likely that this ride, like every other action he'd taken in his life, was a calculated risk. The contemporary accounts don't describe Harold with arrogance or impulsivity. And at most, what we might be seeing here is, as Orderic Vitalis says, he was forgetting himself. And under extreme stress, he was turning to decisions that had worked for him in the past. Everything from the prayer at the cross, which had once healed him, to the lightning-fast attacks launched in secret, which had saved him. He was taking a greatest hits approach to what was an existential threat to himself, to his family, and to the kingdom. And this next bit of the story is both one that everybody thinks they know, and one that I can promise you nobody actually knows. The true battle of Hastings is lost to history. If there was a scribe on that battlefield that day who had seen it firsthand, that account no longer exists. If such an account did exist, we could be sure that it would only give a partial understanding. This event is too big and too chaotic, and the fog of war is too overwhelming for even an eyewitness to give a complete understanding of what happened next. And what we have is far less than an eyewitness. What we have are Norman sources and, well, pretty much just the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And the Chronicle gives us very little, because what was written was written as the English fell to colonizers. So instead, for the most part, what we're left with are sources like William's Panegyrist, Poitiers, or the Carmen, or the Tapestry, or some other accounts that were written much later. And most of those accounts themselves are from Norman writers or from Anglo-Norman writers. There are no surviving accounts of the Battle of Hastings from the English point of view. Occasionally, you do have Norman writers who put words into the mouths of the English people. But the English don't tell us this story. The Normans, their allies, and their descendants do. And even then, the accounts of this battle are confused and contradicting. There are multiple points where we can't say with any certainty what happened. And part of this is due to patronage. The scribes were employed to serve the purposes of the nobles who hired them. And so these scribes go to great lengths to place their own particular benefactor at the center of the action. Many of them seeking to amplify the glory of their successes while downplaying the significance of their losses. And so we're left in a situation where the Normans and their allies are the only ones who get to tell us this story. But at the same time, they can't get their story straight. These accounts can't even agree on whether or not Hastings was a large battle involving tens of thousands or a much smaller skirmish concentrated on a hill. The records disagree on what type of soldiers were mustered, whether archers were present, when certain figures were killed and how they were killed and who killed them and where the fight actually took place. Our vaunted scribes, who provide us with our only written window into this conflict, really are all over the map. And speaking of maps, reconstructions of the actual location of this battle rely on things like analysis of land features. And over the course of nearly a thousand years, the land has changed significantly through erosion and also just construction. Which means that even though you can today walk up to a building marking the spot where the battle allegedly took place, we don't actually know if that is the true location. Nor can we be certain where the opposing armies first arrayed their forces. 
pretty much every aspect of this tale is controversial and subject to debate. And the result is a record that can be pieced together in countless ways. And as such, a very different tale can be told depending on which elements are being prioritized and which are being left on the cutting room floor. Which means you can read an entire stack of books exclusively about the Battle of Hastings and never read the same battle twice because each author is picking over the conflicting accounts in different ways. Our next shop talk on the members feed will go through this issue in detail because the BHP was faced with the same conundrum. Unfortunately though, no one alive can tell you what exactly happened at this battle. All anyone can do including me, is look at the documents we have and make a best guess. What follows is mine. On Monday the 12th of October of 1066, the king rode out of London. And Florence of Worcester tells us that the king was accompanied by, at most, a third of what he might have had had he simply waited for a little while. The king had chosen speed over strength. Joining him were his brothers, Earl Gerth and Earl Leofwina, as well as his nephew, Hakon, son of Swain Godwinson. There were also two priests from Harold's church at Waltham, a pair of abbots, and of course, he was joined by his huskarls, his thanes, his assorted officers, and any of the levies which had managed to join him during his time in London. Now, the presence of the churchmen is interesting. King Harold would have realized by this point the religious aspects of this war that the papacy was seeking actively to dethrone him. And in response, Harold was bringing his own religious figures with him, and they were drawn from places reported to be the site of miracles. And according to some sources, as Harold prepared, he said, quote, May the Lord now decide between William and me, end quote. This conflict had somehow, somewhere, edged well past politics. Before leaving, King Harold ordered the English fleet to be assembled at Sandwich, and then to head to the Sussex shore to prevent William's retreat. The plan, it seems, was to trap the bastard at Hastings. But Harold's wait in London, and the time that it had taken to exchange envoys with William, had cost the king time. It had also lost him an opportunity to take him fully by surprise, because William now knew that the king was already back in the south. And that was a problem. The English had to box William in at Hastings before he knew what was happening. And so their best chance of victory was to make the trip from London to Hastings so quickly that William wouldn't have the chance to react. So orders were sent out to any approaching fighters, telling them not to muster in London. And instead, they were to meet at the hoary apple tree. Now this was likely a site that was known in the region a landmark that was likely near or at that choke point on the road leading out of Hastings. But with that final message to the kingdom, the king and his army rushed south. They faced a journey of about 60 miles in total. For scale, if you asked a medieval army to march 20 miles in a single day, they could do it, but they would be in no shape to fight at the end of it. Don't imagine a recreational stroll in your well-made and lightweight hiking boots. These were huskarls in coats of mail. They carried huge shields, axes, swords, helmet, padding, and God knows what else. And they were going over uneven roads, and 
If they weren't on horseback, they were walking in medieval footwear. And many of them were doing it, having just force marched about 500 miles round trip to York and back. Now an army could reasonably expect to take three or four days to get from London to Hastings. But if Harold and the English could exceed expectations and shorten the trip to Hastings by a day or two, they would be exhausted, but they still might be able to take William by surprise. So at as quick a pace as he dared, the king and his army crossed London Bridge, taking the Dover Road to Rochester. And then once there, they turned down the old Roman road heading south through the Andredsweald. And even at a breakneck pace, even for the elite forces of England, 60 miles in one day was just impossible, especially not after all they'd been through. And while Jumièges claims that Harold and his army marched through the night and they arrived at dawn, given other accounts and details regarding this battle, that account is probably incorrect. And instead, at some point along this road, at about the halfway point on their journey, and likely as they entered the vast forest of the Andredsweald, night closed in, and the dark would have made the crossing even more difficult and dangerous. So the exhausted and battered army probably settled down for a short rest. But as dawn broke on October the 13th, they would have picked up and raced down the road once more. It would have been a long day of marching through this forest road. And weirdly, it would have been beautiful. The high wailed in autumn is at its most spectacular. The army was racing through a forest covered in reds and yellows, on a path blanketed by fallen leaves. But they had to reach the other side of this beautiful place before nightfall. And the king and his brothers knew this forest, and knew these hills. Harold himself had estates here, and I'm sure he was pressing his men to keep marching a little further, even if the night had already fallen, assuring them that he knew these roads and that they were so close now. And then slowly but surely, the scenic woodland would have began to give way. And as they got closer to Hastings, the army would have seen the first signs of the horrors that William and his army had brought to Sussex. Depending on the ruthlessness of the night's pursuit, the bodies of livestock and people might have been visible along the road. But even if they couldn't yet see what was going on, as they neared the edge of the forest, it's likely they were beginning to smell it. Gentle smells of wet earth and leaf mold would have been replaced by the smell of burned thatch and wood. As they neared the settlements on the outskirts of Hastings, the air may have carried the smell of decaying bodies. The Normans had been burning villages looting farms, slaughtering livestock, enslaving women and children. They engaged in such widespread devastation and murder that the population of the entire region dropped for generations. Whole towns were completely depopulated and razed. And the English scouts, keeping careful watch of what was ahead of the approaching army, were likely bringing word of the fate of the communities that lay just a little bit further down the road. One of these places was an estate called Crowhurst, and it was Harold's estate, and that community was gone, just completely eradicated. But the king and his men had no time to stop. Harold had no time to mourn. They needed to get this army into position. 
and it was after nightfall when Harold and his army finally reached the southern edge of the Andred's Weald at the Hoary Apple Tree, a landmark that might have actually been on King Harold's estate at Watlington. And if so, they were within a handful of miles of Crowhurst. And by now, they must have been fully aware of how spread out across the lands of Hastings, there were the signs of waste and violence. But at least they'd made it to the apple tree. Just like Stamford Bridge, they had arrived far quicker than anyone could have expected, making the crossing in only two days. But just like at Stamford Bridge, they were also exhausted. We're told that they arrived on the evening of the 13th, but we don't know precisely how long the trip took, nor how late they arrived. It's entirely possible that they arrived after midnight, and actually they hadn't reached their mustering spot until early in the morning on the 14th, at least technically. But whatever the case, his men were on the verge of collapse. Legend has it that as the army neared Hastings, Harold sent scouts to check on William and his knights, and they returned with a strange story. It seems that the Duke had brought with him an army of priests. Now, for a long time, this was interpreted as a confusion over hairstyles. The English wore thick beards and long hair, while the Normans kept their hair short and preferred to shave their faces completely clean. So it was believed that upon seeing this, the English mistook the Norman knights for men of the cloth. And if this legend holds any truth, that sort of confusion is possible. But I also think it's unlikely. This was not the first time that the English had seen the Normans. They knew what the Normans looked like. King Edward had them all over his court. And so they would have known what Normans did with their facial hair. And instead, I suspect that what the scouts were reporting was that the Normans had an army of priests. William had in fact brought a wide variety of men of the cloth with him. Among his army were bishops, priests, deacons, monks, you name it. He also had the Pope's support and was flying the papal banner and he was lugging around a bunch of relics. We're still 30 years before the first official crusade, so the scouts wouldn't have had context for what they were seeing here. But this was an overwhelming amount of religious symbolism in a colonizing army. And so I think that the scouts conveyed that as best as they could and told the king that William had an army of priests. That makes a lot more sense to me than a confusion over beards, which they would have been fully aware of. It would also explain Wace's comment in the Roman Deru, which claims that as the army began to assemble on that evening, a rumor began to spread that the king had been excommunicated. That tidbit provided by Wace makes no sense unless the English army had suddenly become aware of papal involvement in this invasion and that William's army was religious in nature, with priests, religious symbols, and all the associated accessories. And so King Harold's army, already terribly exhausted, was now beginning to worry about what exactly was going on between their king and the Pope. Because now, they were fighting not just a Norman duke and his knights, they were fighting against the church. And as we've spoken about earlier, the king and his army couldn't be sure that this wasn't just the first wave. This might just be a beachhead, and the Pope might be sending even more marauding soldiers to England once the landing was secure. And Wace claims that as this rumor spread, some of the English deserted. 
But Harold couldn't do much about rumors and gossip. Not right now. But what he could do something about was the exhaustion. They'd reached their destination in time. And William couldn't leave Hastings now without a fight. And it seemed that the Normans didn't even know they were there. So now, Harold and his men had a chance to rest and let more of the English army catch up. So the king ordered sentries to be put in place. And then he ordered the remainder of his advance force to encamp and get some shut-eye. Meanwhile, Poitiers tells us that William had released enormous portions of his army into the Sussex countryside, with instructions to pillage, burn, and ravage their way through the English lands. And to get a sense of the campaign of terror that he was waging, Poitiers tells us that the men were still out in the field as night fell. So not even the dark would have been safe for the people of Sussex, which the record implies was entirely the point. But by sending most of his men out into the nearby villages and towns on the night of the 13th, we're also being told obliquely that Harold's advance had worked. He'd arrived before William could expect him. Unfortunately, with so many French knights and mercenaries roaming the countryside in search of plunder and pain, that meant there were also a lot of eyes out there. And one group of raiders, perhaps looking to loot and terrorize Harold's estate at Watlington, spotted a group of soldiers and horses gathering together near the southern edge of the Weald. A lot of soldiers. And more soldiers were coming down the road. They also likely spotted the king's banner, which the biotapestry depicts as a wyvern, or perhaps the dragon of Wessex. But Poitiers describes Harold's banner as an armed man, finely embroidered in golden threads. Either way, this was a problem. A big one. The French raiders managed to escape the eyes of the sentries and carefully retreated from the encampment. And then they raced back to the duke, who was plonked down behind his palisades and ditches at Hastings. And when William heard that the king and his army were barely a handful of miles away from his fort, he leapt into action. Far too many of his men were out in the field, and he was convinced that Harold was going to try and take him by surprise in the night. So he needed every man that he still had nearby and ready to fight. The call was raised. All those within the fort were under orders to equip their armor and weapons. They had to hold. Meanwhile, back at the apple tree, the English were looking for somewhere soft to lay down for a couple minutes. Ugh, their blisters had blisters. And Unferth hadn't been able to feel his feet since noon. French scouts were now racing in. English ships had been spotted off the coast. Hundreds of ships. More than enough to blockade their fleet. Or perhaps even sink it. And still, William had most of his army pillaging the countryside. Stupid. Stupid, 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 stupid. Why haven't they come back yet? And even worse, what few soldiers he had right now were split between two forts. Okay, okay. The English will definitely try a sneak attack. A night attack is totally the sort of thing that Harold might do. So, oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god. Send riders to the fort of Pevensey and summon all the troops stationed there. That might buy some time while the, our stupid knights come wandering back in. Where the f*** are they? Back at camp, 
Leofwino was probably staring at an apple and wondering if it was better to eat or just get some sleep. My guess is Girth was probably thinking that getting a sword wouldn't be that bad. I mean, at least that would mean his knees would stop aching. William yelled for his armor and weapons. He threw on his hauberk and... Shit, it's on sideways. Now it felt like he was stuck in a giant sock made out of metal. Just gotta shimmy a bit and... Okay, I can get my arms through. And by now, his knights were looking at him real funny. Because everyone saw that not only was it twisted, but twisted to the left. That was actually a really bad omen. Meanwhile, at the English encampment. Fully armed for war, the invasion army was walking the battlements, scanning the horizon. So William took this moment to address the spiritual defense. You see, William had brought two bishops with him, his half-brother, Bishop Odo, and Bishop Joffrey de Montbray. And there were also priests, monks, and clergy. There were a lot of men of the cloth in this invasion, and so help me God, they were going to do their part. So hey bishops, I'm gonna need you to hold a mass. And everyone get in line, we're gonna take communion. Also get that banner out and fly it high enough so Big J can see it. Oh, and we've got relics, right? Kick ass, put them on me. No, like seriously, just put them all over me. I need some corpse magic. And back at the tree. They were coming any minute any minute. And according to William of Jumiege, the Duke was so wary of an attack that he ordered his men to stay on guard in full armor all night. But don't worry, the English were definitely coming. Any minute now. And by this point, some of the soldiers might have begun to wonder if the Duke was just a little jumpy. Because seriously, where were they? As dawn broke, the soldiers at the English encampment began to rustle awake. And I suspect the levies and further reinforcements were streaming in towards Harold's apple tree. The army was growing. In his rush to get south, there were no doubt a great deal of fighters who were still trailing behind them on the road, including, it's thought, most, if not all, of his archers. But even then, Poitiers claims Harold drew an enormous amount of soldiers and fighters from the Shires. Most probably would have been from his family's earldom of Wessex, as well as the earldoms of his brothers, Leofwina of Kent and Gurth of East Anglia. We know that men from Hampshire, Berkshire, Huntingdon, Abington, Suffolk, and Norfolk all answered his call. And now, on the morning of the 14th, even more would have been arriving. Poitiers even claims that Danes joined Harold, but it's likely that as he wasn't present for the fight and was just repeating what William and others told him, this was another mistake in the record. And what Poitiers thought were Danes were actually Huskarls. Regardless, in spite of Florence of Worcester's statement that only a third of the available men of England had answered the king's summons, Harold had managed to call forth an enormous army. The records name Huskarls, sheriffs, abbots, deacons, and freemen at Hastings. 
it was a huge assembly. And keep in mind that generally, we only know if someone fought at Hastings if they were highly ranked, and usually, even then, only if they died there. We don't know how many average folk were there, or where they came from. But from our scant records, despite the multiple battles that had already been fought, and the multiple firds that had already been called, large numbers of Englishmen answered the king's summons and made it to that choke point just outside of Hastings at the old apple tree. And still more were coming. The French had had a terrible and anxious night. The sentries no doubt had jumped at every rustling bush, every stupid horse noise, but at long last, dawn was breaking on the fort at Hastings. Throughout the night, the pillaging knights had returned, and the soldiers from the fort at Pevensey had joined them. But William knew he was in deep trouble. Having devastated the surrounding area, they were now actually in a dangerous position because they were locked up in their coastal fort. And while they did have some supplies for now, those supplies wouldn't last forever. And their campaign of terror had ensured that there really weren't any other nearby areas to pillage. So, unless some reinforcements and supplies came from the continent, they were on their own, and they might begin to starve. But the channel, which is a horrible stretch of water at the best of times, was turning homicidal as winter closed in. And now, it was also bristling with the English Navy. Reinforcements weren't coming. They had to fight. But the Norman Papal Army had been up all night, in full armor, as the cold ocean winds rolled up off the channel. They were tired, they were cold, they were probably a bit wet. They were miserable. And morale had been a problem for this army since before it even was an army. This campaign had been unpopular back when they were comfortably back at home with the warmth of summer holding rallies. But now they were on the blustery English coast, far from home, and surrounded on all sides. This was bad. And William, like most medieval commanders, had tried to avoid situations like this. Situations that were a roll of the dice. But he didn't have any other option at this point. So he made the best of it. Centuries earlier, Caesar had burned his ships in order to take away any possibility of escape, ensuring that his men had no choice but to fight to the death. Caesar left them with no retreat, no surrender, no way back. Their only chance of survival lay forward. And without a single fire being lit, Harold had gifted William with that same motivation. The French army now had no choice but to win or die. You should see me in the crowd. William stood before his tired and dispirited army and delivered a fiery speech. And Poitiers tells us that nobody knows what was said because no one ever recorded it. But weirdly, 
in classic Poitier style, he gives us a speech nonetheless that I assume was what he imagined William might have given. Poitier imagines William reminding his army of who he was, that he was a victorious commander who had won battle after battle in the field, including battles where all things seemed lost and the odds were stacked against them. He reminded them of who they were. They were Normans. They were Rollo's people. They were a warrior people with a rich and fearsome history of conquest, bloodshed, and glory. He reminded them of the lands and riches that awaited them, just there, just beyond the woods. And he reminded them of the danger that they faced if they failed to fight. They were surrounded. To the front, they were blockaded by an army who would show them no mercy. To the south lay the fleet that blocked their retreat. If they failed to fight, if they failed to win, they would be butchered by these Englishmen. Or if they survived and fled into the hostile countryside, they would soon be captured and sold into slavery. There was no way out for them now. They had to fight. And finally, he reminded them that throughout their history, the English had fallen to invading armies. These people fell on invading swords. They submitted to the yoke of a foreign lord. They weren't warriors like the Normans. They were subjects. And at the end of the day, after the fighting was done, they would submit to this army just as they had submitted to so many who came before. And with that, as the dawn began to break, he ordered the papal banner aloft and prepared his army to march on King Harold Godwinson and on England. Meanwhile, early in the morning at the English camp, probably even a little before sunrise, scouts would have returned to Harold reporting that the French fort at Hastings was acting kind of batshit. Everybody had armed up and was marching around all night. And now they were looking like they were getting ready to march out. The Duke had been giving some kind of speech and they were busy waving their banners. They looked really serious. They might actually march out of their fort and fight in the field. And that probably wasn't what King Harold had been expecting. But William had forced his hand. So they prepared for battle. They must defend this crossroads for England. Tradition has it that the English occupied Caldbeck Hill, a bit of land just to the southwest of Harold's estate at Watlington, just next to the split in the road that headed to Lewis in London. And as William marched his forces out of Hastings, Harold readied his men. They were still exhausted from the days of forced marching to Hastings, but he knew they would fight. And so he informed them of which hill they would hold. And in classic Harold style, they would take that position before William and his army had the chance to respond. Now keep in mind that this was about a thousand years ago. Erosion, weather, construction, the creation of a parkland to the south of the assumed battlefield, farming, all of this stuff means that the landscape has changed. 
And so we can't look over the hills that exist today and expect to see what Harold saw on October 14th of 1066. But what Harold probably saw was a bit of land that was tightly hemmed in between the tributaries leading to the River Breed, to the east, and to the open waters of the harbor to the southwest. This area had multiple hills, including Caldback Hill and Tellum Hill, and they were likely quite a bit steeper than you would find them today. And King Harold moved his forces to one of these hills, just to the south of his encampment. Traditionally, this is believed to be the hill where Battle Abbey now stands. It was a steep hill overlooking a brook, which Orderic Vitalis named the Senlac, meaning Sand Lake, and Lord Tennyson later renamed to the Sangwalak, meaning the Lake of Blood. King Harold chose this hill deliberately. Its location on the watershed made it difficult to approach, especially on horseback. The only approach that was actually on a reasonable gradient was to the left. But that route went over marshland, and a cavalry charge across sandy marshland is asking for a broken ankle, or more likely, a broken neck. And this might be the sand lake that Orderic was talking about. To the right was steep, difficult to cross, uneven terrain. And to the front was the best path for possible assault, but that too was steep and uncultivated land, so it too would be difficult to cross. William wouldn't even be able to mount up and attack him from the rear because behind the king was a dense wood. Harold didn't need to build a fortress the way William had done because Harold knew the area of Hastings already and he was going to use the land as his fortress. This hill was an English citadel and there at the top of it King Harold and his army assembled. But f they were tired. Half a mile to the south, William's army was assembling on the crest of Tellum Hill. The bio-tapestry shows his troops arriving in full armor, which is odd because typically armor would be carried to a battlefield and then put on before the fighting began. Because, you know, that stuff is heavy. And normally, I'd assume that the ladies who were doing the embroidering got this one wrong. But William had been so sure that a sneak attack was coming that he made his soldiers stay up all night in full battle dress. So now that he was marching outside the safety of his walls, I wouldn't be surprised if he insisted that they march in full armor. Just in case. The 3,000 knights kitted out in male hauberks probably had the easiest time as they would have been riding to the battlefield astride their stocky war horses. But the bulk of William's army had to walk the approximately five miles to the battlefield. And many of them were walking in hauberks with matching leggings and helmets while also carrying their weapons and shields. By the time that they reached the field near Caldbeck Hill, William's army wasn't just sleep deprived. Their backs, legs, and arms were probably screaming. And once they reached the hill, William arranged them into a pattern. All while his men looked out, 
and they saw the English waiting for them on the hill across the field, and noted how that hill and the forest behind it, quote, glittered full of their spears, end quote. And that was pretty much what everyone did, probably for about an hour or two. This all actually took a lot of time. Marching, lining up, moving around, getting told you shouldn't stand there, but actually you should stand over here. No, actually, now that I think about it, go stand back over there. Think about picture day at school, except instead of looking at the photographer, everyone was staring at a group of heavily armed people shimmying around a hill just across the way. And everyone on both sides was already dog tired before the fighting had even begun. The maneuvering and marching had probably begun at around six in the morning. And hours later, they were still doing it on tired legs. And the kicker here is that we know that there were morale problems in both armies. So many of the people who were assembling to fight in this battle obviously didn't want to be here all that much. But the people with titles like King, Duke, and Pope had decided they had to go. And so here they were. The English army took full advantage of the defensive opportunities of this hill. They dismounted from their horses corralling them to the rear near the woods and moved into a shield wall, a human fortress of men and shields and axes and spears. This type of battlefield and this sort of warfare worked well for the English way of war. They were dug into a very difficult to reach location. Their flanks were protected and they had an elevated position. Cavalry would struggle here. So the English plan was to stand shoulder to shoulder, lock their shields, and use their spears to impale any men or horses that came into range, or bring their axes down upon the heads of any invaders coming up the hill on foot. Harold appears to have planned to fight a defensive battle. Rather than seeking out a confrontation, they would hold their ground and weather whatever William and his army could throw at them and they would make the French pay for every inch of ground in their own blood. And with the harbor blocked by the Navy, every soldier that William lost was one he couldn't replace. Whereas the English forces were vast. Many were here at Hastings, but many more were still on the road, coming to join their king. And as we mentioned earlier in this episode, England had the potential to pour in massive numbers of reinforcements. But there was just one huge problem. The English who were on the hill at this point were lacking a key military unit. Archers. King Harold's advance had been done in record time. And considering the horses being corralled, it looks like everyone who managed to arrive on time had done it on horseback. And chances are, the archers weren't horsed. So they were probably still somewhere along that 50 to 60 mile stretch of road from London. And that lack of archers meant the English didn't have many options to keep the Normans at a distance. In the bio-tapestry, the English soldiers are portrayed throwing javelins and other missiles at the Normans. Things that were only effective at a much closer range than arrows. 
The Norman scribes speak of how William came upon Harold, quote, before all his army came up. And others speak of how Harold appeared to be missing large portions of his forces. And some historians have interpreted those statements as evidence that William had taken Harold by surprise. That he hadn't managed to arrange his men into a shield wall before the battle began. But looking at the records in total, and the length of the battle that followed, there's nothing to suggest that was the case. This wasn't a sudden ambush followed by a rout. And instead, I suspect that what the scribes might have meant when they wrote before his army was come up is that Harold's rapid advance meant his army was split, or rather, it was strung out along the road. The fastest troops, those on horseback, had arrived at Culbeck Hill, but most of his army was still on its way. And when William had marched out to battle, within a matter of hours of learning of Harold's presence in the region, he had forced a confrontation before the bulk of Harold's forces had fully arrived. Whether that was William's intent is anyone's guess. But I will say that Poitiers, who would be the first to tell us if William had a good idea, doesn't tell us that this was the plan at all. Instead, he essentially tells us that William panicked when he found out Harold was assembling on both land and sea. So rather than strategy, the lack of archers seems to have just been a stroke of luck for the Norman Duke. But still, England was able to produce a surprising number of mounted fighters. So while the king only had a fraction of the military strength of England, according to Poitiers, they still outnumbered the French invaders. And military historians, who love making force estimates and poring over terrain maps, broadly believe that King Harold's army stood shoulder to shoulder across the full length of the ridge at the top of the hill, a line that would have included about a full thousand men, meaning that Harold's shield wall wasn't just incredibly long. It was probably somewhere in the region of six to eight men deep, complete with reinforcements. This hill was crammed with heavily armed English warriors. William had never fought a battle like this. He'd never fought a battle where an enemy had chosen a location, dug their heels into the ground, raised their shields, and looked to battle over every inch of territory. And when he looked up at the hill and saw the English arranging their forces, it seemed pretty clear that they weren't planning on coming down. They'd chosen a position that was flanked by marshland and trees and they left the bastard with only one approach, straight up and into the waiting arms of the English. And holy hell, there were a lot of them. But there was nothing to be done for that now. With that fleet off the coast and this army assembling here, William must have known that this was as good as things were going to get for him. This was his best shot. So William herded his army into three divisions. The left flank would be manned by the Breton forces, commanded by Count Alain Fergant. The right flank were the assorted French and Flemish sources, under the command of Count Eustace of Boulogne, the butcher of Dover. And William's Normans would take the center, commanded by his half-brother, Bishop Odo. And all throughout the line, in every division, were companies of knights. 
So looking at this arrangement, it's clear that William placed his most loyal and reliable fighters, his direct vassals, at the center, while the mercenaries who had come on the promise of riches and lands and who were under the command of nobles that William couldn't fully trust were positioned on the flanks. William's archers, who were generally unarmed men wielding short bows and some crossbows, took position on the front line, perhaps supported by some skirmishers with slings and javelins. Behind them were foot soldiers, wearing coats of mail and carrying swords and pikes. Then finally, there were the knights, wielding swords and spears or lances and wearing coats of mail split at the waist that reached down to their knees. All along the line, throughout each division, nestled within each rank of soldiers, were banners, and these told of who each company was and where they came from. And towards the back, with his knights, was Duke William. And with him was the papal banner. And while William had never commanded a battle like this before, the tactics that governed them were ancient. They had been carried out by generals for literally centuries. The initial attack would be carried out using ranged weapons. The aim would be to break the defensive lines of the enemy infantry. Next, the foot soldiers would advance, looking to break up the enemy line further and force the defending army into a man-to-man fight. Once the enemy line was fully broke, the cavalry would sweep in and ride down the disordered troops. William's arrangement tells us that he knew this strategy. But warfare on the continent had been changing. So while William might have been aware of this dance and how it worked, it was an open question whether his army of mercs would have shared that knowledge. Across the field and up the hill, King Harold was organizing his own forces. Now, some older historians speak of how the English were disorganized at the Battle of Hastings. Older books will tell you that the English warriors were just bunched together into a tightly packed plateau on the top of the hill, more of a mob than an army. But even the Norman records don't support this idea. The English military was well organized. It had to be. The shield wall, or as it's sometimes called, the war hedge, was a difficult feat. If there was no organization, there was no wall. There's also evidence in Old English itself, as Old English had a lot of words for soldiers. Hape, arid hape, arid threat, arid werod, truma, skilled truma, werod, hearthwerod. There were a lot of words, and all too often people assumed that these were all just synonyms, that they all basically meant the same thing, soldier. But those same people would absolutely lose their minds if we applied that same reasoning to Roman warfare and suggested that a legionary, a centurion, and a praetorian were basically the same thing. These terms existed because Roman warfare was highly organized, and each of those terms indicated a soldier's or a unit's role in a very carefully ordered army. And so was the English army. And we can be sure of this because it had been successful in many battles with both foreign and internal conflicts. So those terms must have meant something for the men who were filling the lines. And we can also be sure that Harold actually did have a battle plan. 
Now, unfortunately, our Norman sources don't give us as many details as we would like regarding how the shield wall or the war hedge was arranged. But whether Harold had his men drawn up into straight lines with overlapping shields bristling with spears, or whether he arranged his men into a series of wedge-like columns that could break up an advancing line of foot soldiers, we can be sure that whatever he did, it was deliberate. And based on what we have, Harold seems to have divided his forces into three divisions and placed them in an arc. It's likely that his brother, Earl Gerth, held the right flank, and his other brother, Earl Leofwena, held the left. King Harold took the center. The bulk of their fighters would have been drawn from the Ferd, many of whom would have been wearing padded leather armor covered in metal rings. They were armed with spears or axes, and they carried wooden shields. Spread throughout the English army were the more experienced soldiers, the thanes, and the huskarls. And their placement throughout the units would help ensure that the Ferd would hold their lines, fight together, and follow the plan. These experienced warriors wore coats of mail on top of padded shirts. They also wore helmets, they carried shields, and were armed with swords, battle axes, and spears. And a few carried a halberd-like weapon with a hook blade called a bill. These were the armored tanks of the king's line, and they would have been an intimidating sight. In front of the army, interspersed all down the slope of the hill, were ditches. I don't know if these existed prior to the battle, or if the English managed to dig them before the battle. We do know that medieval armies could dig ditches like this remarkably quick, so it's possible. But whatever the case, these ditches would have been the first problem the Norman cavalry would have to deal with. And some sources also indicate that a smaller hill, just to the right, had a secondary English force of warriors hand-picked by Harold, and they stood by to harry or flank any approaching soldiers. King Harold Godwinson and the army of England had dug themselves in deep. He didn't have his archers, and he didn't have as many men as he would have liked, but he had enough to fill this hill, and still some to spare for a flanking force. This battleground was chosen well. The only danger was the woods behind them, as they were so thick, an ordered retreat would be difficult. And with their horses corralled at the rear, retreating was now downright impossible. But they weren't here to retreat. They were here to destroy this menace. There are no mentions of prisoners or ransoms in this battle. And prisoners and ransoms were common in 11th century warfare. And that suggests that both sides were looking to completely destroy the other and had absolutely no interest in taking anyone alive. But now that the king had his men arranged, he was forced to wait. The nature of his position meant that William had to make the first move. And when everyone was finally arranged, the field would have gone quiet. We think of battles as noisy affairs. Guns, tanks, planes, bombs. Modern warfare is extremely loud. But tanks weren't rolling through the fields outside of Hastings. 
Planes weren't dogfighting above. The crack of rifles weren't bouncing between the hills. Instead, as these two armies stared at each other, you might have heard some men talking. Metal scraping across metal as someone adjusted their mail. Some movement and wickering of the horses. And just the omnipresent sound of thousands upon thousands of people lightly shifting their weight, or even just breathing. It would have been eerily quiet. But at 9 a.m., the silence was broken as horns sounded from within the French army. And suddenly, they moved in an ordered line towards the English. And as they moved forward, the English army wouldn't have heard much at least not at first, beside the horns. They were too far away. But slowly, as they closed in and neared the foot of the hill, that would have changed. The sound of thousands of feet and hooves, the clatter of metal, and the war cries that were being screamed out in French would have been heard by the Ferd and the Huskarls. William's army was calling upon God's favor, literally shouting God's help, though it's unlikely that the English understood what they were saying, as they were saying it in Old French. In response, the English began to scream back, and they too were seeking God's favor, shouting God Almighty and Holy Cross back down the hill. But as they were shouting in Old English, the French forces below hearing this probably didn't understand what they were saying either. And for a moment, that was all there was. Just men shouting to God, men shouting at each other, men shouting at their enemies. A sudden cacophony of anger and anxiety. And then a signal was given. And the block of archers at the front of William's army raced ahead. The English crowded in and slammed their wooden shields together. They knew what was coming. And they had trained for this. Row upon row of soldiers overlapped their shields and carefully held them in position, forming a thick wooden wall between them and the enemy. And then they waited, unable to see, but knowing that it wouldn't be long before the archers were within 50 paces, which would place them in range of their arrows. Hunkered in the dark together, under their shields, they waited for the sound of arrows falling from the sky. They had to hold the line. But then again, and again, we don't know how many volleys were launched, but this probably went on and on. The French had the advantage here. They could strike the English, and without archers, King Harold and his men had no way to strike back. For the men crowded together, taking shelter beneath their hardwood shields, it probably felt like hours, like an eternity. But at some point, men began shouting again in Old French. And the archers spread out and stood aside, clearing a path for William's foot soldiers, clad in male hauberks, and wielding swords and pikes, and they started rushing up the hill. The English unlocked their shields and spread out, 
but only a little. They needed just enough space to strike between their shields. And they waited as the foot soldiers marched up the hill, carrying with them pounds upon pounds of heavy metal armor, clambering over the ditches and the rough terrain. And King Harold and his Huskarls probably felt a bit of hope as they saw this advance. William was an idiot. All those arrows had accomplished virtually nothing. The shield wall had done its job. The English line was strong and unbroken. And William had wasted the advantage that his archers had given him. And now, his foot soldiers were running up a steep, uneven hill in heavy armor. And while the English archers hadn't yet made it to the battlefield, the king's army still did have a few ranged weapons. And once the French soldiers got within about 30 yards, the English line readied their javelins and hurled them down the hill. Shortly after, these were joined by rocks, stones, heavy sticks, and whatever else the English could find to chuck at the French army. Poitiers even mentions that they had tied rocks to sticks and were tossing those down the hill as well. Now the French, like the English, knew how to use their shields to protect themselves against volleys like this. So William's foot soldiers likely organized themselves into groups and were holding their shields together to try and stave off the worst of this as they crawled up the hill to begin the melee. But this hill was rough, uneven, and covered in ditches. Getting up there with all this gear was incredibly hard and it would have been impossible to maintain their formations for the entire advance. And any opening was a weak spot in which a well-placed javelin, spear, or heavy stone could enter. The back lines were probably grabbing anything they could find and hurling it in an arc over the shield wall in hopes that they might find a hole in the formation and concuss a Frenchman. At the very least, the unrelenting rain of random objects would probably slow down the advance. And at this point, the English found a new battle chant. Out! 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 William's advance softened, but it didn't stop. So the English warheads dug their feet into the mud and braced for the clash of shield on shield that they knew was coming. Now spread throughout the warhedge were the Huskarls. And now that the melee was coming, they readied their dreaded two-handed battle axes. Four to five feet of vicious, bone-breaking, dismembering agony. These foreigners, who were now screaming as they charged up the hill, had probably never encountered a Huskarl wielding a battle axe. But today, they would. In seconds, the battle cries dissolved into a clash of metal and another kind of screaming. The initial impact would have been shield on shield, with spears trying to slide their way out from the line and into the enemy. But this only would have lasted for a few moments. Immediately afterwards, the French would be slashing out with their swords, hacking at English limbs poking out from behind their shields. And the English answer to this was far more brutal and terrifying. The Huskarls, using both hands, swung their axes high over the shield wall and slammed them into the heads, shoulders, and arms of the French soldiers, who were now pinned against their shields by their own comrades. The bio-tapestry memorializes the strength and devastation of these English axe wielders, 
by showing decapitated and dismembered soldiers, carefully embroidered, laying dead in the field as the battle raged on. Fighting on foot like this was the English way of war. This was their bread and butter. It was what they trained for. Even the furred would have been trained in the methods and tactics of the shield wall. And the French could only try and adapt to this strange method of making a castle out of men. Like Stamford Bridge, and in every other major battle that the English had fought for generations, the primary goal of the infantry was to open a hole in the enemy line. Once open, the Huskarls and other fighters would flow through into it and shatter the organization of their opponent, cutting their enemy down and ultimately forcing a rout. So as King Harold commanded the center and his brothers commanded the flanks, they likely shouted orders and offered support to this end. And we know that the English shield wall wasn't a static thing. This wasn't a matter of soldiers planting their feet and never moving, ever. Instead, the wall was much more fluid and was directed by commanders and officers who would have been carrying out battle plans that had been prearranged. And then spur-of-the-moment tactics would be employed in response to opportunities or problems that presented themselves as the fighting raged on around them. The wings of the English line would have been maneuvering, trying to outflank the French. And they may have also been trying to use that harrying force rumored to be placed on the smaller nearby hill. And then the clanging of shields, weapons, and screaming men would occasionally be punctuated by an enormous organized war shout coming out of a section of the English line. And then suddenly, that was followed by thousands upon thousands of men, as many as eight men deep, all pushing at once against the likely unsuspecting French line. And now that the French were off balance and their bulwark of shields was weakened, there was a sudden flash of weaponry that lanced out of the English lines, slicing through their own shield wall, going up and under it, and searching for the bodies of these unfortunate and overwhelmed French soldiers who were making up the front line. If the English could weaken even a fraction of that line, just enough, it might break. And then they could roll up the whole division. This part of the battle wasn't a mere matter of minutes. This fighting would have taken place over the course of an hour or more. And through it all, King Harold and his commanders, positioned within the shield wall themselves, would have been shouting orders and doing their best to keep their army working together. And it was working. These men that William had brought with him didn't seem like they knew how to handle what the English were dishing out. The shield wall was holding. They were losing men, certainly, but so was William, a lot of them. And suddenly, a signal was given, probably a horn, and William's infantry forces began to carefully retreat back down the hill. And that probably looked a bit funny to the English, as the French would have been trying to maintain their formations and keep their shields up, while also awkwardly trying to back down the steep, uneven hill. But that amusement didn't last. The Norman knights trotted out from beyond the archers, led by a standard bearer. And they picked up speed as the infantry moved aside to let them pass. The speed and skill of the knights guiding their horses would have been unnerving. These men didn't even need to hold their reins. They could ride their horse, 
holding both a shield and a weapon, and still keep the horse's information, using only signals from their knees and spurs. The ditches and mounds of the hill weren't even slowing them down all that much either. The English must have been terrified when they saw how well-trained those horses were. At least, until they also noticed that, unlike their riders, those horses were unarmored. Whoopsie. And they also noticed that William was slow. Typically, a cavalry charge would happen as the infantry retreated, or in the middle of an infantry assault, if they could manage to attack from the flank. But apparently, William was having a hard time getting his knights in order, because the infantry had already withdrawn, and only now did the cavalry begin to assemble at the bottom of the hill. And this gave King Harold and his Huskarls time to change the shape of the battlefield. The English line transformed into a dense thicket of shields and spears. There's a good chance that the English put their shafts of their spears into the ground, placing their foot on top of it to hold it in place, and then angled the shaft upwards at a height of about 14 hands, just as the Norse invaders had done weeks earlier. And since the line bent in an arc across the full ridge of the hill, flanked by woods, there was no chance that these knights could ride around the flank and charge through a less protected area. Then, the English could only hold their position and hurl insults and whatever else they could find nearby at the approaching knights. As the knights approached the final leg of their advance, they slowed down. Rather than charging into what would be certain death, they tried instead to use their horses to gain some height over the English shield wall. But the hill was too steep, and the best the knights could probably do for themselves was get eye to eye with the English as they closed in and slashed at the wall with their swords and spears. The tapestry shows some of the knights holding their spears overhead, which they very well may have done, since bouncing them off the English shield wall would have been pointless. The best chance they would have would be to try and strike downwards. But the knights, like the foot soldiers, were out of their element. These English tactics had turned their horses from being a powerful weapon of war, with lightning quick maneuvering ability and endless flanking opportunities, into an unarmored and bulky platform to perch on while the knights were forced to fight, essentially, a hand-to-hand -hand battle while sitting down. Then suddenly, the battle axes of the Huskarls came crashing out of the wall, hacking through the unprotected flesh of man and horse alike. And as for the coats of mail, they might prevent a dismemberment. But the weight of these axes meant the bones beneath the mail were breaking all the same. It's reported that the only sound at this point was, quote, the clash of weapons and the groans of the dying, end quote, as the English fought shoulder to shoulder to defend this hill. The Norman knights have probably never encountered anything like this, and they weren't adjusting fast enough. The warrior elite of France and their precious mounts were taking gruesome wounds, or just falling dead under the punishing barrage being met out by the English. Men and horses were screaming and dying there at the top of the hill. And the French knights decided to take this moment to retreat. 
this wasn't a win, but for the English, they had won themselves a small break. With the enemy on the back foot for a moment, some of the English would be able to gather up the bodies of their fallen comrades and tend to the wounded and recover a moment and prepare to rotate back into the melee. I don't know what they would have done with the dead and wounded from William's army. The field directly in front of the English war hedge would have been ghastly, and it's unclear if the French collected their wounded as they retreated. If they did, none of our sources mention it, and there's no mention of prisoners in any accounts, so I can only guess what would become of the French knights and foot soldiers who were wounded and left behind. And by this point, they were probably about an hour or two into the battle. It was still late morning. And despite forcing William's army back down the hill, the English had still not managed to force him off the battlefield. The king was fighting a defensive battle. He wouldn't seek out William in the field, nor would he advance on his forces. He had decided at the beginning that they would hold the hill and invite William to come to them. And it looks like he was sticking to that plan. And tactically, this makes a lot of sense to me. Though military historians have pointed out that it's very hard to win a battle if you never attack. But I'm not sure if that was Harold's goal. Harold had William blocked in by land and sea. There were no reinforcements and there was no retreat for the Norman Duke. It looks like Harold was enforcing a blockade while he waited for the arrival of the remaining two-thirds of the English military that Florence of Worcester had mentioned. And I suspect that Harold's real goal in this day was just to prevent William from being able to break free. And if he got the chance, maybe bloody his army to a sufficient degree that he wouldn't be able to launch another attack in the future. The trouble, though, is that Harold wasn't the only person occupying that hill. He had an army that numbered in the thousands, perhaps as many as 12 or 13,000. And it's unlikely that they all knew precisely what Harold had in mind. And with a force of this size, Harold had to rely on his commanders and officers to maintain the discipline of his army, to make sure that everyone kept pulling in the same direction. Now, there's no detailed first-hand account of this battle, but we do know it went on for hours. Around 10 hours, in fact. And so we can be sure that when Poitiers tells us that the battle raged for a long time and that no one gained ground on the other, that the Battle of Hastings was hard fought. There would have been multiple advances and retreats as William and his army tried to find a way to break through this fortress that Harold and the English had constructed. The implication in virtually every account is that the English stout resistance was having a severe impact on the morale of the French invaders. And that at one point, during one pause in the fighting, a rider broke off from the Norman line and began galloping up the hill towards the English. And as he rode, he was swinging his sword around and then he was hurling it twirling it and then catching it and throwing it again. The English army could only stare in shock at this apparent madness. Was this a herald? A minstrel? Did the French just take a f***ing gesture to war with them? What was this? And the rider just kept 
thundering towards the English, tossing his sword, galloping, catching it, and galloping some more. What was even going on here? And the Ferdsmen and Huskarls were apparently so baffled by the actions of this rider that they allowed him to bring his horse right up to their lines. And it was only when he caught his sword and began to slash down at the men who formed the shield wall that they realized what was going on. This man was nuts, and they killed him where he stood. And all of a sudden, the Norman cavalry, who were watching this bizarre display at a distance, surged forward, and the battle began again. Attacks played out over and over again. The archers would advance and send arrows into the mass of English shields. Then the infantry would haul back up the hill and try and hack a hole into the war hedge. Then the cavalry would press their horses into the fray and try and find an opening. And as the Ferd and Huskarls beat them back with their spears, shields, and battle axes, the French would retreat back down the hill. Over and over again. And during one of these endless attacks just after the cavalry had engaged, something changed. A shockwave of emotion and movement went through the field. One minute, the Ferdsmen and Huskarls were fighting for their lives. And the next minute, they were watching as William's line crumbled into a panicked rout. You can imagine a cheer rising up from the English lines as William's papal army broke like a tide before them. This wasn't a retreat. This was a rout, and some of the English gave chase, because this was it. They were winning. This army was broken, and now was the time to finish this. Within seconds, a large portion of the English fyrd was flying down the hill after the retreating French. And back up the hill, their commanding Huskarls shouted murder at them, screaming for them to get back in line. And King Harold, if he could see this, could only watch in horror as he realized what was happening. Because he had used this same tactic himself at Stamford Bridge. He might have been screaming for his men to hold their position as they broke forward. But over the din of battle, and over the vast distance of this battlefront, it's doubtful that anyone who wasn't directly next to the king could have even heard him. And so suddenly, large numbers of English warriors were out in the open and undefended in exactly the kind of situation that the king had worked so hard to avoid. Even worse, the gap in the shield wall was now opened. A portion of William's line that hadn't retreated surged into the opening where the Huskarls and officers fought them weapon to weapon, shield to shield, trying to hold them back and reform the line. Meanwhile, the Ferdsmen who were running down the hill likely had no idea what was happening behind them because they were focused on catching up with the fleeing soldiers. And then there was a signal. And in one terrible moment, all the retreating Normans turned and they cut down the disorganized and isolated English Ferd. You should see me in the crowd. The Carmen tells us that Harold's army suffered terrible casualties in this moment but still his army wasn't broken. And after a terrible fight, the English were able to force William's army back down the hill and whatever remnants of that undisciplined Ferd were able to rejoin their comrades on the line. Despite the ruse, the English held possession of the field 
and the fighting continued. The invaders once again marched up the hill, fired their arrows, engaged their foot soldiers, and rode up with cavalry. Again and again. Sometimes they would retreat, other times they would flee. It went on for hours. It was punishing. It was relentless. It was brutal. But still, the English held the field. What happened next probably started with one unlanded knight who had come here in search of easy riches. Chances are it suddenly hit him, the full horror of what he had signed up for. And that one night turned, and he was immediately joined by others. And in mere seconds, an entire flank of cavalry wheeled their horses around and began charging back down the hill. And the infantry and archers who were behind them could only watch as now hundreds to thousands of horses carrying hundreds to thousands of terrified knights were pounding their way down the hill and directly into them. The foot soldiers did the only thing they could do in that situation. They ran for their lives, directly into the line of archers, who were then sent scrambling backwards themselves. The English line saw this. This wasn't a feint. This was real. They really could finish this right here and now. They'd been fighting for hours on end. It was evening. The sun was setting. They were exhausted. They were hurt. They'd watched all day as their friends and brothers and fathers were cut down all around them. It was time for this to be done. And so one flank flew after the panicked, disorganized French soldiers. And it's most likely that this was the wing commanded by Harold's brother, Earl Gerth. And in the chaos of the battle, Earl Gerth joined his men down the hill, either trying to get them to fall back in line or being taken in by the same battle frenzy. And then another shockwave hit the line, this time at the center. The Normans, seeing their flank scrambling down the hill as fast as possible, panicked. Men began shouting in Old French that the Duke was dead, or that the Duke had abandoned the field. And in moments, the knights that formed the center of the battle wheeled around and began charging down the hill, towards the foot soldiers and archers who were also waiting behind them. Harold had to make a split-second decision. Order an advance, and thus abandon the advantage of the hill, or continue to hold this position, and in doing so, lose the chance of possibly breaking this army and leave the advancing Englishmen to have to handle this entirely on their own. And from his vantage point up on the top of the hill, Harold may have been able to see a Norman on horseback. He was accompanied by a retinue. This man rode out from the back lines and stood before his fleeing army. And he removed his helmet. Much closer to the action, among the throng of his advancing troops, Earl Gerth also saw the knight remove his helm. He was shouting something at them that Gerth probably couldn't quite make out among the clatter of so many armored men running down the hill. But Gerth noticed the effect that this unhelmed man had on the army. They were stopping and taking orders from this man. That must be him. That must be the bastard. The retreating forces turned and regathered their composure just before the English detachment came slamming into them. 
and far from the organized war hedge that had been devouring knights all day. The English, in their haste to cut down the fleeing forces, had landed themselves in the middle of an open melee. Strategy was now out the window. Whether or not they survived would come down to individual skill and luck. And Harold's heart must have sank as he watched the rout suddenly stop and the army turn on his men. Hundreds, if not thousands of his men were now stretched out, disorganized, and in terrible danger. And he may have known that somewhere in that mob was his brother. But Gerth had one target, the bastard. As the melee broke out around him, he pursued the unhelmed knight with a singular focus. And once within range, he gripped his spear and threw it with all his might behind it. But he missed. Rather than striking the Duke who had brought all this pain and suffering to England, he struck William's horse, which reared and fell, leaving William on foot, exposed. Gerth and his men charged forward, trying to cut the bastard down. This was their chance. If they cut the head off the snake, this would be the end of it. And suddenly, after a flash of steel, Earl Gerth dropped to the ground, mortally wounded. His men, likely the thanes and huskarls of East Anglia, the men who knew Gerth best, raged and threw themselves into battle, trying to cut their way towards this cursed Norman duke. The Carmen adds that once Gerth fell, quote, furious fighting erupted, end quote, which sounds like King Harold, Earl Leofwina, and the full English army engaged the Norman force. They wouldn't have been all that far from the main line when this happened. It would have been a short run at most. And from the rest of the detail in the Carmen, it does appear that the English line had broken into a melee. In the words of the Carmen, Savage death raged. The tall, easily recognizable Norman Duke was defending himself as best as he could. But he was still exposed, and the English could see it. And he started shouting to a nearby knight to come to his aid. The knight rode up to the Duke's defense, and the merciless Norman Lord knocked the poor man off his horse, mounted it, and rode off. English soldiers in the melee continued to try and strike him down one of whom managed to kill the horse that Duke William had just pilfered from that night. But he was unable to finish the deed, and instead caught a sword across the stomach from the enraged Norman. Men were dying all around them now. There was no strategy, no order. The rout and the subsequent charges meant that everyone was mixed together. Knights, archers, huskarls, foot soldiers, herdsmen, it was a mosh pit. The Duke was somewhere in there, fighting in the melee, perhaps looking for another horse. The English were fighting fiercely on that hill, and they had already suffered so much. They marched faster than anyone thought they could. They fought longer than anyone believed they would. They had suffered and bled for their king, and they were so close now. Just one man, just one blow, and all of this would be done. Spears lanced out. Swords came swinging down from mounted warriors above. Massive battle axes crashed down from out of nowhere. Arrows shot through the air at some unknown target. It was absolute chaos, with each man doing whatever he could just to survive. Everyone 
everywhere was fighting. Everyone. Even King Harold Godwinson. Because he could still win this. He was no stranger to battle. He was a warrior king. A victorious king. That was why the Witan had selected him. And he would win here too. He just my old friend I've come to talk with you again thanks for listening because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence in restless dreams I walked alone